Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And Cam, I think we're doing something slightly special, something slightly celebratory this week. That's right. We've wrapped up the Brosnan era, and I think we're going to debate, you know, is it true that nobody did it better? Well, we're going to find out tonight. Yeah, that's right. So what we've decided to do now is when we get to the end of a Bond, when we finish his films, and maybe some other franchises as well down the road, we're going to do a roundtable. We're going to bring in some experts. Uh, maybe not this week, but you know, from then on in, we'll bring in some experts. Um, no, I kid, I kid, I kid. We're going to bring in some experts, talk about the films, break them down, compare, contrast, and try and figure out the best of the best and and, and basically the fun bits along the way. So, without further ado, I shall introduce our guests. Firstly, hailing from the Sevenaya Hills, it is none other than Shayla Miller who, of course, is the captain of Hashtag Team Brozza on Twitter. Shayla, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you so much for having me. No, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you for coming on. And, of course, emerging from the Cuban Ocean in a bikini, <laughs> we have Tom Butler, who is an editor for Yahoo Entertainment UK and the co-host of the James Bond A to Z podcast. Tom, hello. Mojito? <laughs> yes, I Thank you for having me. It's... um. A real pleasure to be invited to talk about uh, Piers Brosnan with you guys and with Shayla. Um, he is one of my favourites and yeah, just really excited to get stuck into it. Well, I think that's how we should start this off because uh, mine and Cam's histories with Brosnan is, is long chaptered in our episodes, but I kind of want to hear from both of you about your connections to the Piers Brosnan bond. So why don't we start with you, Shayla? Uh, you know, what's your connection to the Brosnan bond? Well, it all started with um, I'm going to say probably watching Mrs. Doubtfire. Um, and I just, I fell in love with Stu. I felt really bad for him. He's a great guy and he didn't deserve the run by fruiting. He didn't deserve any of that. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I, uh, I wanted to discover more and I'd been playing the GoldenEye game, kind of like unknowing that it was even to do with a movie. Like I had no idea what James Bond was. I just loved GoldenEye. Um, so then when I, watched Stu and Mrs. Doefire, I decided to look into more of his um, filmography. And so, of course, I found James Bond. And uh, I actually, at first, wasn't sure that I liked him as Bond. I had watched Roger Moore first in Man with the Golden Gun, and I, and I watched The World is Not Enough next, and I thought, oh no, do I like Roger Moore more? I, uh, but then, of course, by the end of the movie, I was like, my goodness, this guy knows how to be Bond. And, uh, and I just, I've been a, a fan ever since. I I started around, I think, 11 years old, and I love Bond ever since. Yeah, I mean, you are the champion of, of Team Brozza on Twitter. If there's a Brosnan chat, you will appear. Uh, you'll come sliding in like the tank. Yep, you got like that right. Exactly yep, fix right. my tie and go. <laughs> um, and what about you, Tom? Uh, well... Uh, like many people in the UK, I, I grew up watching the Bond films on TV. Um, I think very much brought up on Roger Moore and Sean Connery films. And then um, I don't think I ever saw any of the Daltons. I probably too young to, to see them at the cinema. But um, I remember vividly Goldeneye coming out and, uh, and it being released at that time where you're a teenage boy and there's nothing greater than, you know, James Bond at the cinema. 
And so really, uh, that was my introduction to Brosnan. Obviously, everyone's introduction to Brosnan as Bond. I had no real concept of him beyond Bond at the time. And I think Mrs. Doubtfire came later for me. And then uh, Lawnmower Man as well. Um, mm, yeah. But yeah, I saw uh, GoldenEye, um, Tomorrow Never Dies, World Is Not Enough. And then Die Another Day, I have to confess, I was probably bit busy doing other things by the time it got came around to to that film coming out so that's film uh, uh, that's a film i've more discovered more recently i mean say more recently with like within 15 years of it coming out um so yeah and i'm a huge fan of his i just think he's um he brings something different to bond um and something fun i think and i suppose before we get on i did mention it on the intro but you're of course the co-host of the james bond a to z podcast uh tell us a little bit about that as well yeah so the james bond aid podcast we launched at the start of 2021 and it is uh an encyclopedic look at the making of the james bond films specifically looking at the people who made it uh, in front of the camera and behind and you know i think we st- I, I i imagined that we would probably have finished the a to z by christmas but we're only just getting to the letter d so it's taking us a lot longer than we thought it would. And I think it's because because there's just so many people to talk about. You know, they say that you you, you can't, um, what is it, you can't rate, it takes a town to raise a child. I mean, it takes a city to make a James Bond film and there's 25 of them, right? So that's why it's taking us so long to get through. But, you know, we're, we're, we're really enjoying it. Each actor, each Bond actor gets a special two-part episode and then we get guests on as well to talk about them as well. So we've done... Uh, Sean Connery, we've done Piers Brosnan, we've just done Dalton as well. And um, Brosnan, I would say, is the one that we probably had the most fun doing. Um, but yeah, we're, we're slowly getting, and we've only done three of the films so far, I think. So um, now we're getting to D, we're going to power through a load of them, right? Die Another Day, Diamonds Are Forever, Doctor No. It's, um, we're going to hit another gear now. So yeah, very excited to, to sort of move on from the letter C at the least. Did you cover the um, 67 Casino Royale? Or are you holding that one off the table? No, we did that. Yeah, the I think it's because it's just so integral to the story of the James Bond films that we couldn't ignore it. Um, and I had to I had to watch it for the first time for the podcast because I had done the thing. You know, I just ignored it because it's not a proper James Bond film. But I have to say that was one of the most enjoyable things to get stuck into because it's a Bond that, you know, it's like discovering a new Bond. It was it was it was amazing. Well, it really was good fun to dive into. The film is dreadful, but um, the story behind <laughs> it is is fantastic. You leave David Niven alone. <laughs> um, well, yeah. So I, I, I suppose we'll quickly just spell it out. I basically have the same connection to the Brosnan Bond. I picked up the GoldenEye game, I think, before any of this. And then I think I ended up watching Tomorrow Never Dies first before I watched GoldenEye uh, on home video. I didn't get to see any of those at the cinema. It was not enough was my first in the cinema, and I've been seeing them ever since. What about you, Cam? Yeah, for me, I became a Bond fan when I was quite young, but the idea of Bond movies being something that was in theaters and happening concurrently with my own life just was so unfamiliar because I just fell really in that era where, you know, like it was that post-License to Kill. I remember seeing License to Kill, like, advertising in my grocery store, probably for the video cassette release, but, like... Then it was like several years. So I was more just rewatching the old stuff. And at that age, you regard anything that was made about six years before you were born as like ancient. Like these are movies that happened hundreds of years ago. So the idea of Bond being something that would happen 
while I was still alive was super exciting. So when, you know, Brosnan got the job, I very much followed, you know, in magazines like Entertainment Weekly, the hiring, the press releases, and just, I remember they did a special issue maybe a week before the movie came out where they did their Bond rankings and did an extensive interview with Brosnan, and I was so hyped, and I saw all of his movies in theaters. So, yeah, it was a... For me, really ushered in sort of that era of me being a Bond fan who actually sees the movies on the first round with an audience. So I think what we'll do is we'll set the table and the tone for everyone listening at home. How are we going to do? We're going to bring up topics and we're going to pass it around. So uh, I'll bring up the topics and there's a little section later what we get to called Best Worst and Why, which I think is quite fun. But I want to start us off with talking about what the Brosnan Bond sort of meant to the franchise you know what what it actually looking back on it what it means so i'll throw the question out first to tom well i think the the most important thing um that uh, brosnan did for bond as a franchise is something that uh, cam just touched touched upon which is you know they had the six-year gap uh the series was uh not secure its future was not secure and you know even when timothy dalton was making the license to kill he said this could be the last bond film and that was very much in the air. And so what Brosnan did when he came in and, it, you know, like I said, it takes a, th- a thousand people to make a film. But you obviously you pin all your pin everything on on him like, you know, he's like the England manager of, of the of the Bond film, isn't he? He's like the guy that you all look to. And and that film being such a success. Basically secured the future, I would argue it's the most success. It's the most important reboot of the James Bond series full stop. You know, you could talk about Daniel Craig era changing the way that Bond was made, but this really was the one that said goodbye to the old era with Cubby Broccoli and ushered in the new era of the '90s. And I think that's the most important thing um, that Bond, that Brosnan did for Bond, um, was just yeah, setting it up for another 25 years. And that's a really important thing to keep in mind with, especially Goldeneye, because for a lot of people, people were talking about is Bond dead. Is this it? Mm-hmm. Are we done now? And they took a punt on a lot of the things in Goldeneye, especially the writing in the film itself. You know, some of the characters, some of the Bond girls are completely different to what we used to before. And luckily they, they scored because it could have been a complete failure. So um, a credit to them. Like Goldeneye is an absolute success. So it was a good choice. And I, I completely agree from, from my side of it. Uh, you know, that whole idea of it could have been the end and it could have been no Brosnan and been no more Bond and we wouldn't all be sat here today talking about it um yeah that I think his legacy in that sense is he saved it I remember though at the time the reviews for um you know Goldeneye weren't great um there was like I remember you know Siskel and Ebert was like a one thumb up one thumb down there was a lot of three star or c plus kind of reviews for it it's one that at the time people were a little dismissive of in terms of the critical circles as Eh, it's just another Bond film, but it's one that, with the distance of history, we kind of understand how important that film was, and perhaps when measured against some of the other Brosnan movies to come, would be very much viewed as the triumph of that, you know, four-film series. Uh, well, Cam, is, is that your thoughts on that, or do you have any more on sort of the what he meant to the franchise? Yeah, I think what's important about Brosnan as well is that the Dalton era, they never, they never really cracked it with audiences. It seemed like they wanted to do more of an 80s action hero thing, and people weren't really taking it. License to Kill did not perform particularly well, and so it felt like Bond was a little out of favor, and they didn't know how to position him for a new audience, and it feels like with Brosnan, they cracked it. They made him a more emotional Bond than we'd really seen before. 
they worked in some of the humor of the Moore era. Um, I think one thing that's often pointed at with Brosnan is that people don't really know how to define his Bond in comparison to like, you know, Roger Moore's the comedic Bond, you know, um, Timothy Dalton's the serious Bond, whereas Brosnan is the blank. <laughs> they don't really know. But I think what's important is they were very much balancing all of the elements to try to find an actor who could inhabit that. And it paved the way to do more radical retellings with Daniel Craig. You had to get back on solid ground and have a really solid Bond actor to be able to experiment again and win the audience back over. Yeah, he really did feel like sort of an amalgamation of what had come before. Whereas when they had other Bonds, they always tried to do something slightly different. Yeah, the only one you could compare is maybe um, Lazenby um, felt a little more like them trying to mold another Connery type. But with the one movie, it's really hard to say because maybe if he does two, three, four movies, maybe by the time we get to a third Lazenby film, it's taking a drastically different direction than what we would see from like a Connery Bond. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, what do you think, Shayla? Well, that, so that was actually going to be what I was going to say with, with what he brought because like, I, I feel like he brought all the positives of all the Bonds before him. And I think sometimes, you know, people just say he's the greatest hits or he was safe. He was the safe choice. But I think that that in itself, being a greatest hits or t taking all of the best parts of all the other Bonds and bringing them together, I think that's a positive because he was he was able, he had the talent to be able to just to do it all. Like the worst quips he sells and, and just like, well, hey, hey. <laughs> <laughs> and like, I just, you know, like he does the serious side really well. He does the humor really well. Um, I think it's a shame we probably never got to see the, full bond that he wanted to be like I, I you know i think i think after die another day i think that would have been like the brosnan bond performance um which i mean but all the, the four we have are incredible um but yeah i would say just you know bringing all of the aspects of all the other bonds that worked bring them together in this beautiful package i think that is a very impressive feat I also wonder, too, if because they cast a very solid actor who won audiences over very quickly, it allowed them to experiment a little more outside of the beyond the Bond character. Because, you know, it is the 90s. They're looking at it more as a modern concept on the franchise. So you're able to now bring in Judy Dench's M. You can start to shake things up a little bit around the character. But if you keep the character consistent, the audience, they don't necessarily grate on new additions. They just focus on what matters to them, which is Bond. John Cork, uh, the author of the of the book, the the James Bond Encyclopedia, we had him on the podcast recently, and he was instrumental in writing the character bible for the Pierce Brosnan era. So he wrote this document for Eon, the James Bond of the nineties. One of the key mantras is is the world has changed, but James Bond hasn't. So you're right; it's like you know they mix everything up around James Bond, but Pierce Brosnan holds that ship steady at the center of it, right? And as you were saying about the quips he delivers the quips whether they're good or bad and the difference between him and Dalton is he looks like he looks like he's happy to do it whereas with <laughs> Dalton you know sometimes it seems like he's doing it under duress uh, and I think that's something that Brosnan brings to it and something we discussed as well on on our podcast is when you think about how Brosnan came to the role which is you know he was cast and then he had to drop out to do uh, the final season of Remington Steel and then they came back to him he's really the one actor out of all of them who really loved being James Bond. He's the one that would have carried on at the end and would have done more. I think the others, obviously Sean Connery, you know, just became disenfranchised with it. Didn't even know what Bond was when he signed up. Lazenby, 
I mean, that's a whole story in itself. Hmm. Roger Moore almost was like born to play that role and he just inherited it. Right. And was happy to just carry on doing it as his, as his regular gig. But um, Brosnan, I feel like is the one that just, he just loves being Bond. And I think it, he, that's infectious and that comes across on screen. And he cared about the character because you, you know, hear so many interviews where he constantly wanted to push for more development of James Bond as a figure, which the past, you know, iterations, they didn't really try to do other than really um, Honor Majesty's Secret Service. You got bits and pieces in the Dalton era, but not to the degree I think Brosnan was pushing for. And I remember him being very vocal. He wanted to get Tarantino in to direct a Bond movie, for example, and do like a Casino Royale film. He was someone who saw a lot of potential in the character building, which I think a lot of the reaction from fans at that point was a little dis dismissive of like, ah, get over yourself. But it was kind of him pushing that boulder uphill that opened the door for Daniel Craig to really be able to do those character-centric Bond stories that actors in the past had not gotten to do. One question I had as well is maybe looking at what he brought to the role himself, looking at his sort of past work. He did Remington Steel. Then Remington Steel ended. He did some films. We've mentioned Mrs. Doubtfire. What did he bring to the role himself? What do you think, Cam? I think it is that more emotional take. Um, you saw bits of emotion in the Lazenby one for sure with the relationship with Tracy, but it feels like when you watch the Moors, you watch the Daltons, you don't get as much of an emotional stake in the relationships going on in the film. Whereas when you watch what Brosnan brings, whether it's the relationships with like Electra King, Natalia, these relationships matter to the character. And they're also working in things like, um, you know, Bond feeling disavowed or betrayed by MI6 in Die Another Day. Aspects like that showed that this was a Bond that actually felt something. Whereas in the past, it often felt like they played him maybe even a little too hardened, or in the case of Moore, <laughs> I don't even know what to say, a little flippant of everything going on around him. I mean, to be fair, I, you know, I cried at the end of The World Is Not Enough, but that was mostly from the pun, so... <laughs> fair. <laughs> yeah. Don't jump the gun. <laughs> he still delivered Whoa, that you... line. He delivered well, it. Yeah. Come yeah, on. He, he, he said the words. He said the words. Um, what do you think, Tom? I think uh, Brosnan brought to it a uh, certain physicality that we had been lacking. I mean, I know Dalton was very sort of pro doing the stunts, um, but I think Brosnan just had more presence and he looked more physically capable of, of dealing deadly blows to the bad guys. Um, and the way he just blusters into Goldeneye, I just think is, is fantastic. He just, he's an action hero in that. And he looks like a matinee idol as well, which... Again, Dalton looked great, but Brosnan just has another look to him altogether. Um, I know that he sort of had a certain amount of stage experience, but I think he went from being stage and had very much a target on being the matinee idol. And I think that's what he brings to it. Dalton, obviously, very theatrical. Roger Moore, very sort of classic Hollywood feel to it. And then Sean Connery, maybe a bit more methody style to him but but brosnan bought that leading man persona um and physicality i think i never thought about that he really is in many ways like the movie star james bond in comparison to the others connery obviously became a movie star but earlier on yeah it's sort of that kind of the rough and tumble guy in a suit um that's interesting yeah i never really thought about that shayla what do you think 
Well, I think that Cam and Tom like nailed it. Um, you know, he brought the emotion, he brought the depth. Like you, you don't you don't get to see like for example Paris Carver very long, but just the way he plays it, you you want to know the story because he plays it so well that you're like, oh my gosh, wait, what happened with him in Paris? Um, and 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 again, it, it's kind of just kind of like how it, what I said before, where he just sort of brought the ability to do all of the things that were good about Bond before. Like he can he can nail the funny stuff, he can nail the the serious stuff, and uh, yeah, just like he just brought he brought it all, and you can see it on screen, whether the films are good or not. You can see that he was absolutely in love with what he was doing. They're all gold. What are you talking about? <laughs> I remember Ebert saying something like um, early on being like, I don't know about this Brosnan guy as Bond. I don't know that this really works. He's too kind of light and, you know, not as much, you know, grittiness as Bond. But I remember by the time he got to like the later movies, his reviews were like, Brosnan can have this role as long as he wants it. Like he is James Bond. So he definitely did win everyone over by the end, even if the movies <laughs> kind of were a little bit of diminishing returns in many ways. I'm going to sort of reiterate something Shayla said earlier, but in a different light. There was a concern Shayla was saying about him being a safe bet and then not taking a chance on someone else. But that's exactly what you needed to relaunch Bond. It's someone that you could trust. He was almost Bond two films ago. They wanted him to be Bond. They knew he could be Bond. And they wanted someone that could walk in and be like, yes, I'm Bond. And? Questions? Yeah. And and just get on with it. And and everyone did. They saw him jump off the dam. I mean, it wasn't really him, but you know what I mean. And they're How like, dare you? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was. How dare you? <laughs> uh, yeah, but that's it. They just bought it day one. And and that's what you needed in, you know, in 95. Yeah. All right, folks. Now, I come up with a little section called Best, Worst, and Why. We're going to do bring up a topic say villains and we're going to throw it around and pick out the best the worst and why and then sort of rank them a little bit so first up as i mentioned we have villains so everyone best villains we'll start with cam okay so for me this really comes down as a choice between xenia on a top and 006 um, from Goldeneye. I think Goldeneye really set the bar very high for villains, and I'm not sure they ever managed to beat it. Um, I think in many ways Xenia's the more iconic one, and I think Famke Jansen kills it, but there's something about the 006 character that when I first saw this movie, I don't know that like Trevelyan jumped out to me as an all-time Bond villain, but over the years as I've rewatched the movie more and more, he's a character I find consistently fascinating because they tried the Dark Mirror Bond thing a couple times. You know, we got it with Red Granted from Russia with Love. We got it with um, Christopher Lee in The Man with the Golden Gun, Scaramanga. But I always felt like it was a little underdeveloped there. It was a great idea. I think when people write about it, they of course like Red Grant. Of course they like Scaramanga. But it's like they didn't quite exploit that Dark Mirror thing as much as they could. And it felt like with Trevelyan, they really nailed it. Where you have the relationship between the two. They come from similar backgrounds. And then we get to see Trevelyan change into kind of your classic Bond villain with a scarred face. But what I love is when these two actually face off, it's not a case of like, you know, Roger Moore like shooting Stromberg at the end of Spy Who Loved Me, where it's like, well, this uh, power dynamic is very imbalanced. We are watching these two guys hurl each other downstairs. They have the same training. So for me, Trevelyan is a real top tier Bond villain. So he's the one I rank the highest. Okay, we got one for Trevelyan. What have you got, Tom? Um, I also had exactly the same top two, so I'm going to go for my my third option, 
um, which is Boris from the same film. <laughs> and I know he's, <laughs> he's not clearly, clearly not a villain, um, but he ranked quite highly for me just because I love Alan Cummings' performance. Uh, and he's such a memorable part of that film. I know he's not like technically one of the main villains, but um, uh, I just love, I just think he's fantastic. I remember, remember going to um, what they called, uh, hard, was it, what was the Hard Rock Cafe? What was the the movie version? Planet Hollywood. And they had in the London one, they had the Boris Frozen. And that was like the centerpiece. Oh my yeah. God. That wow. amazing. That was like the centerpiece of the one in London. And I just remember being transfixed by it. Um, and for that reason, you know, he just sticks in my mind. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm going with Boris. And if you need more options, come back to me. Okay. We've been curveballed <laughs> with Boris here. That's uh, interesting. Interesting. Shayla, what have we got? So I came into this thinking I was going to pick Trevelyan as well, uh, because he is all the things Cam said. He is a fantastic villain. He he has all the same training. But I just watched The World Is Not Enough, and I just I have to give it to Elektra, um, because I mean she's the first female villain. She's so much fun, and I'm like to the point where I wanted to see her survive. I don't know how, but I I wish she did. And I find too that like. There's a lot of similarities between Electra and Tracy. Like you can tell that Bond falls for her, like even before he meets her. And then you see the moment where he does in the movie and like her, her outfit in the ski scene matches, kind of looks like Tracy's outfit when he, when she rescues Bond and they, and Tracy and Electra both end up dead as a result of Bond's actions. And so, but she, she to me is just perfect. She's beautiful. She's cunning. She, she almost kills bond like she is that the closest he's ever come like i know we've got like the gold finger laser but is that the scaredest bond has ever been for his life i don't know the only one that pops to mind for me is when he's in the burning casket in diet in diamonds are forever oh yes and then they let him out like i feel like he would not have gotten out if they had not brought him out Agreed. So that's hmm. the only one, but that one's also not as character-driven as like the Electra scenes. Uh, I'm not really holding up the casket scene as an all-timer villain uh, <laughs> plot against Bond there. Uh, the <laughs> yeah. Casino Royale to- torture scene, I think he comes close to it there, right? Um, and also the mm-hmm. poison scene in Casino yep. Royale. They have to literally restart his heart, but um, no, I think that's... Uh, Electra King was next on my list after Boris, so um, good choice. I am going to pick someone else's pick, so that person will be the winner. And those of us that can see me in this call, I danced to when that person made the pick, so it's Electric King. And it has to be Electric King. I completely agree with you, Cam. I love the dark mirror element. Good dancing, I like it. I love the dark mirror element, and it's great. But Electric King had him on the ropes. She was the kryptonite if he was Superman. And that's exactly it. Now, the Dark Mirror might have won. Maybe. But he never really had Bond on the ropes particularly. Whereas Electric King was a few moves away from winning. You know, one last screw. <laughs> sure. And she's also the most groundbreaking character in terms of the villains in the Brosnan era. It's the one that I'd like to say that there was a ripple effect, but there really hasn't been since. We'll see. We'll see, I guess, in the future if that changes. But... Um, I would like to see more characters like um, Electra because I think there's a level of psychological realism to that character that's really interesting as well. And that scene where she's like giggling and running up the stairs from Bond, like one of her all-time great villain moments where you just see this is someone who does not view Bond as a threat, just as like a pawn in a game. 
Seriously, she's so sure. She's so sure that she, that he will not hurt her. But yeah, yeah, she does not think he'll pull that trigger. Nope, no, and it just makes it all the more incredible. I remember being shocked in the theater when that happened. I remember mm-hmm. the audience being visibly kind of like, "Whoa!" Like, yeah, we're used to seeing him like kill Trevelyan seven times over at the end of the previous movie, or you know, the Xenia scene. She does die, but it's in some ways by circumstance of him shooting a helicopter down. Whereas actually seeing him shoot Electra like point blank was genuinely surprising. You'd think in other Bonds that he would just like whack her in the head with the, the, the butt of the gun or something like that and knock her out instead of killing her in cold blood, more or less. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, that looks like Electric King's winning the best villain, but what about the worst? Cam? So I actually think the Brosnan era is very strong on villains. I don't think there's a lot of low points or really forgettable ones. Like in the more, there's a couple that you're just like, this guy's barely a character. Whereas. Brosnan, for the worst, I have to pick Zhao, the henchman from Die Another Day, played by Rick Yoon. I like Rick Yoon. I think he's imposing in the movie, but this character has, like, two strikes against him. One, the whole, like, here's a guy who's, like, a mutant um, who was going through genetics to become a white guy and wound up in the middle. Like, ugh, problematic right there. That's awkward. And then we throw in the diamonds in the face. I love a good disfigured henchman gimmick but like the diamonds on the face is not scary so it's like you have two really unfortunate elements being saddled onto this character and look i think you could have overcome it if you made him a compelling henchman you know xenia is genuinely compelling but he's kind of just a generic heavy in a movie where his only gimmicks are one is silly and the other is problematic so i gotta go with Zhao. and why did they keep the diamonds in when they captured him they're on surface level just tweeze them out I have no idea. It's like they came up with the idea of a guy with diamonds in his face, but also couldn't justify it in a logical way. So they're like, I I don't know. They're just there. (laughs) We'll just keep them. MI6 is just like, yeah, whatever. Let them have them. They look neat. They look neat. This is the same film where they said, oh, we wrote in the invisible car as a joke. (laughs) (laughs) True. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I can't. I can't. uh, I can't save die another day. But yeah, maybe Tom can. Tom, what have you got? Well, uh, I've also gone for die, uh, another die, die another day. Colonel Satan Sun Moon slash Gustav Graves. Uh, I love, I love both characters actually, and that's the that's the irony. I do I actually think both characters are interesting in their own ways, but making them the same person. Spoilers, but um, it's just so problematic and misjudged and silly that it just. Uh, yeah, they both give it their all. Fair play to them, but I just don't don't think it works as a as an overall concept. So um, yeah, other uh, other notable um, mentions for me, Mister Bullion, in uh, just for his stupid name and just sheer lack of presence. Um, but yeah, Gustav Graves slash Colonel Moon for me. Shayla. Uh, exactly the same as Tom, uh, Colonel Moon and Gustav Graves, and not because I don't like them, I do. And like Cam said, I, I agree, um, Brosnan's era did have really strong villains, and I'm only picking him because, well, I can't pick Electric, she's my favorite, and <laughs> Trevelyan and Carver are just so much fun. I mean, but Gustav Graves is fun as well, he just, I kind of wish that that there was two movies and they were just different characters like Colonel Moon and, and Gustav, like, cause I, they're, they're both amazing in their own right. And, 
And I appreciated Toby Stevens's approach to Gustav Graves, like being so over the top. And it just reminded you, it reminds me anyway, of like the Moore era with the big over the top um, villains. But if I had to pick a worst, it would be Gustav and Colonel Moon. He starts off so cool, like kicking that bag with the dude in it. You're like, okay, all right, I like this dude. And then he becomes Toby Stevens. Yeah. It's... I like Toby Stevens, though. Like, he takes every line and does it so hammy. That's why, like, for me, I couldn't put him as the worst because he's one of the elements of the movie that keeps me awake through a lot of the boring <laughs> sections of Die Another Day because every line, he is just chewing it over, like, spitting it out and then biting it into it again and chewing it again. Like, he's just constantly milking every line for everything it's worth. So when he's like, you'll never kill my dreams, like lines like that are incredible. And you give that to an actor who's not going to have fun with them and I'd be bored. But he delivers in a completely absurd character. I agree. I'm only picking him because I just wanted to pick one of the main villains. But yeah, he's, he true. was so much fun. I just, there has to be a worst. Well, I'm sorry, Cam, but it's time to witness the rising of your son. Uh, <laughs> or the I am, fall, I guess. <laughs> oh, yeah, potentially. Uh, I'm strapping on my Nintendo Power Glove, and I'm also picking uh, none other than Gustav Graves. I, he's just so abysmal. I'm sorry. He's funny, like it's funny to look at in kind of like a what is this nonsense kind of way. But I, the whole film doesn't have a good villain, which is a shame. Even even like Carver gets a lot of stick for being kind of not menacing or anything like that. But he's kind of interesting. He's got he's really good at typing. Like he's got that going for him. Uh, uh, but yeah, Gustav Graves is just apart from maybe being a good fencer. If they kept the martial arts spin, that would have been kind of cool. But he seemed to have lost that in the uh, in the changeover. Gene therapy will do that to you. Yeah, <laughs> true. It's just kind of like the pompous, you know, millionaire guy. Um, I just there's nothing on the page. Like in terms of what Toby Stevens has to play. It's a character that like feels like he was even a bad idea in 2002. Um, so you can only really appreciate that Toby Stevens is just going crazy. Just absolutely going crazy with the character. You're only going to get one shot being a Bond villain, I guess. Mm, yeah. Unless you're Jaws. Unless you're Blofeld. Oh, Blofeld too, yeah. And I mean, now he plays Bond in the books. So he gets to, you know, he gets to live the yeah. dream of Bond as well now. So good for Toby. I'm glad That's he right. got that, because that, I mean, having Gustav Graves on your CV is not great. <laughs> <laughs> I think being a Bond villain is great no matter what. I think I would, I don't care what movie, if I was a Bond villain, I would just soak it up and I'd be so happy to be there, whether it sucked or not. I'm sure he's, I'm sure he looks back on that and thinks, oh my gosh, I had so much fun. Maybe. At least he's more interested than Christoph Waltz. <laughs> yes. Mm. Well, yeah, yeah. We'll see. We'll see. No time to die. Fingers crossed. He's not Bond's oh, yeah. brother. That's great. That's, well, yeah. that's, that's really good. Well, there you go. It looks like uh, Electric King is running away with best villain and worst villain is going to Gustav Graves. Shock horror. Let's move over to gadgets. Best gadget, Cam, what have you got? So I dig the uh, laser watch in Goldeneye. It's really cool. I love it in the video game. Um, but it also feels... You know, kind of just an evolution of what we saw. For example, the Saw Watch in Live and Let Die. Things like that. The various watch gadgets. So I went with the BMW. With the backseat driving in Tomorrow Never Dies. What a great action sequence. And it feels so inventive. A lot of the gadgets, they're just kind of pulled out randomly. And they feel a little bit, you know... <laughs> basically the movie's written around working a gadget in. Whereas here it feels like... 
they came up with the idea and then were like, how do we build the most memorable action scene in the movie around it? And you have Brosnan cackling like a schoolboy in the back of the car. You're coming up with all these scenarios for how this, what the advantages of backseat driving. So for me, this gadget is one that gets a great showcase and it's a really fun concept. Tom? Yeah, I've got to say, I think that the Brosnan era is quite poor for gadgetry. Um, the gadget iconography for Bond, I think, beyond the remote control car, there's, I don't think there's a huge amount that really jumps out um so it kind of breaks my heart to say the aston martin vanquish the invisible car <laughs> which uh i think is a great is a great invention right if it's real and they can do it then i think that's a fun way of moving on the idea of the gadget car um i know it gets a kicking from people um but where else were they going to go with it uh so that's that's my choice the vanish as he calls it i mean you do get that really cool the use of the uh ejector seat which I think is is an uh, interesting take on it. Yeah. The the cloaking uh, device is terrible though. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've always been curious, you know, Tom, a lot of people um will point to the the vanish as like the breaking point for the Brosnan era. Like that is the problem with that movie. Now, did you sense that when you were watching it and how have you sort of resolved over the years, you know, people's relationship with this car? I don't like I agree with you. I don't think the car is anywhere near as offensive as the way people treat it. What do you think it is about the car that drew the ire of people in a movie that also had Bond, you know, paragliding, uh, paragliding in front of, um, you know, chunks of ice? Yeah, I mean, that's a much more egregious uh, sequence in the film for me because it's so CGI heavy. Um, but I think, you know, I think it was a step too far. And I think even the, even the um, uh, Barbara Broccoli and Michael T. Wilson said it was a step too far. But... It was based on real technology that was available at the time, or at least was in development at the time. Um, but it does become the shorthand for, and I think you said it on your discussion about the film, you know, it's a middling film, but it's hard to pin your finger on like exactly what it is. And so you can just say, ah, it's got, it's got an invisible car in it. And that becomes like the focal point of the, of the Aya. But um, I don't know. Like I said, I just think it's a poor era for, for Bond gadgets. But it's the one gadget everyone remembers from the Piers Brosnan era. So I would say for that reason, you know, it's a good gadget. Excellent point. Yeah, that's true. Uh, well, we've got two car-based gadgets. Shayla, what have you got? I actually picked the Sonic Ring in Dine Another Day. I think that would oh. be so handy to a spy. Like, imagine if Silva would have kept it from his days at MI6. He could have busted out of that glass cage that they had him in. And they caught him, even though he didn't want to escape because he wanted to be captured. He's pulling a joker or whatever he was doing. Um, but mm -hmm. uh, I just think that'd be so handy for a spy. Just to, I mean, and it's super handy for Bond in, in the film. That saves his life, too, because he, he gets to bust the floor out and not get shot by Miranda Frost. So that one wins for me. I, I thought that was really clever. And it's something that that I don't think that villains would think of to look for like just a ring on his finger. I, I I just thought it was kind of like a really cool, just kind of incognito kind of gadget. What I like about the ring is that the audience forgets about it. It's set up and you go, oh, okay, cool. Uh, and then he pulls it out later and you're like, oh, of course, the ring. Like, I like the gadgets that can kind of work in a little more subtly. And, you know, I picked the BMW, which was not subtle at all, but I do like the ring one. I mean, the BMW, that would have, that was a top choice for me as well. But there's just something so cool about the ring and different, you know, because Bond always has cars, but he doesn't always have a sonic ring. So I just thought it was, you know, really cool. 
I'm jumping on the BMW bandwagon from Twine Never <laughs> Dies. It, um, well, it has a bit of a personal connection with me, actually, that one, because we watched that film as a family and we would pretend in the back seat that we're driving Dad's car for him. Uh, or we would like sit whilst he's out shopping in the car and pretend that we're driving around the car park. And it was just kind of a cool thing in our family. So we always just make jokes about that car. So I just, whenever I watch that scene, I get that sort of nice tinge of nostalgia and it's just fun. It's shot in a car park in uh, in in some like suburb as well in in London as well, isn't it? It's a very like um, is it? I can't remember. Is it like ah, oh, I can't. Brent, Brent isn't yeah, it? Brentwood or something uh, like that. Yeah, Brent, Brent, Brent Cross. Cross. Brent Cross. Yeah, it's like a really like unassuming shopping centre they filmed it in. Yeah, no, no Avis next door to plunge it into though, unfortunately. <laughs> Uh, well, it looks like the BMW's taking it away and driving off with it. But as for worst gadget, Cam? Yeah, um, I don't think there's like a really egregious gadget in the franchise. But the one that always kind of graded on me was the inflatable avalanche jacket in The World Is Not Enough. Because like, okay, the movie is basically reverse engineered around this gadget. Because when they introduce it, you're like, okay, sure. It's like they knew Bond was going to go skiing and, like, trigger an avalanche. Like, it just feels like the movie bending over backwards to accommodate a gadget as opposed to actually it feeling organic to the story. So maybe in a different movie, I wouldn't pick this one. Like, had they introduced it right at the start of, I don't know, like, one of the more snow-based Bond films, I'd be like, makes sense. Bond's going to the Alps. I get it. Here, come on. Yeah, it was definitely a strange one. Uh, Tom? Um, I had the snowsuit also on my list, but, um, yeah, I'm going to say another car based one and it's just beyond the remote control BMW, all the other BMWs that Bond gets just because they don't feel, they just don't feel Bond enough to me. Uh, it's, you know, he gets, what is it? Is it the Z3 in Goldeneye? And then yes, he gets, yeah, another one in the world is not enough. And they're nice enough cars, but they don't like they don't have the classic appeal of like, you know, yesteryear for me, at least, you know, it's not a Lotus. It's not uh, an Aston Martin. It's just a a commercial deal that they made to get these films off the ground. You know, they did a three film deal with with BMW. So um, they just haven't stood the test of time for me. You know, that's probably the most affordable Bond car that if you wanted to buy one now yourself, you could probably pick one up for quite decent money because they're just so common. And that's not what you want for Bond. You you want him to be driving prestigious motors. Um, So, yeah. Just don't try and drive it from the back seat. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I I, I get what you mean about not feeling quite right. I mean, you look at the Aston Martins, they just have that timeless feel to them and... But then again, it's like the bond of the new millennium. Maybe they needed to shake up the image. The one in Goldeneye, though, is pretty like lame, where it's just like one quick shot of him driving to a plane. Like, whatever. That's what I was going to say. Like, the car in Goldeneye and the car in The World's Not Enough, they don't really get to be showcased the same as, like, Tomorrow Never Dies. Um, you know, like, the one in The World's Not Enough, like, shoots a missile and then gets sawed in half. And Jack Wade gets mm. to enjoy the other one in Goldeneye, so you don't really get to see what they were capable of, so they're not really that exciting. True. Yeah. Um, okay, Shayla, what have you got? I also picked the snow jacket in The World Is Not Enough, um, just for the fact that they didn't know that he was going to be skiing. Um, I think they even demonstrate the jacket for him before he's even on the mission. Um, 
because mm. he, he's still not cleared by medical. Um, but I do think it's a very handy thing to have. He James Bond as a spy does ski a lot. Just the fact that no one knew he was going to be going skiing and he had it with him, I it does kind of feel like they just kind of threw it in there because they wanted to throw an avalanche in and have a cool gadget kind of thing. I'll use Tom's word from earlier. It was egregious. <laughs> <laughs> it has one good element, which is the electric claustrophobia moment. Absolutely. In the, mm. in the jacket. But we had to bend over real backwards to get there. Yeah. Well, I see, because the way it looks like to me, it's not really an avalanche. It's like, it was like a frozen cavern that they fall into. So it, like, to, that whole thing kind of, like, made sense to me. Like, he had a bit of time to sort of, you know, get the whole bubble around him but yeah no he why did he have it with him he didn't know he was going to go surveying the pipeline <laughs> i think i think the snow jacket's going to run away with it so i will just throw out a funny one that i didn't like which is uh, q's leg cast rocket launcher because that is such a specific thing to be like hey we need you to fake having a broken leg so we can hide this rocket launcher to sneak you in on a wheelchair somewhere that's a lot of steps but don't you think he just made that for fun? Like, do, like, don't you feel like Hugh just, like, plays pranks? Like, he had that coach in Live and Let Die that he got that guy to, stay, to sit on, and then he got sucked into the coach. I just figured the leg thing was just, like, a fun, practical joke. He'd be like, oh, no, I broke my leg. Jokes. Pff. You know? Same with the uh, phone booth in, in Goldplay. Q branch like, initiation. <laughs> so I always just thought maybe they, they were, like, some fun gadgets that he just makes up on, on MI6's time when he's bored. It's true. Like, there's the um, the like hypnosis rope or something in octopusy where when you play like the flute it starts climbing up in a straight line out of the basket oh, yeah. whatever like <laughs> there's a lot of stupid gadgets i mean i think when we do the more era in particular we're gonna have some real ones to point to as worst gadgets <laughs> so it looks like the bmw from tomorrow never dies takes best and worst goes to the snow jacket from the world is not enough Next up on Best, Worst, and Why, we have Bond Girls. So let's change up the order this time. Let's go to Tom first. Best Bond Girl. Uh, well, I don't know if this counts or not, but um, Judy Dench is M. Uh, she considers herself a Bond Girl and is, for me, the definitive character beyond Bond in the Brosnan era. era. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's just an open goal, right? Uh, she's fantastic. Mm. She was... You know, left field choice at the time, but really proved to be the best person um, to be the foil for James Bond. Um, you know, that whole scene where she meets Bond for the first, well, we meet Bond for the first time with M. And she calls him the dinosaur. It's just fantastic. And then as her character evolved, just got better and better with each film until she was sort of very involved in The World Is Not Enough. Um which I think was sort of the natural evolution for that character. Um, and she obviously outlived, outlived Brosnan as Bond as well, which uh, is another big tick for her. So, uh, yeah, that's an easy one for me to choose. So Solid choice. Yeah, it felt like it. they also understood the potential of like M as a character. I mean, Robert Brown and Bernard Lee are great when they play M, but it also felt like, Mm, they're not really characters. They're there to set up the mission, trade some barbs with 007, but that's about it. We stopped them there, where it felt like once you got Ju uh, Judy Dench, it felt like they knew they could actually write a compelling character. And so that's a, yeah, really strong choice. Well, what about you, Ken? 
So for me, I go with Natalia from Goldeneye. Um, she feels like an evolution of where they've been going with Bond girls. Because you look at the Dalton era and Pam Bouvier and Kara. I think they're developing them more than some of the ones from the past. But what I really like about Natalia is that her story starts long before Bond is even involved. She's there at that, you know, satellite station. She takes part in the Goldeneye, um, or not takes part, but is, a, you know, a victim of the Goldeneye attack and the only survivor. And we get to follow her journey so that when she actually meets up with Bond, she has her own thing she's bringing to the table. She is the computer hacker, and it's a computer hacker I actually buy in a movie versus, like, some of the ones we saw in movies like, I don't know, Hackers or The Net. You know, things like that where you kind of, like, roll your eyes at 90s versions of um, computer hacking. Natalia comes Jurassic across Jurassic Park as... hackers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, Jurassic Park. I mean, that's Park. the worst example. Yeah, that's the worst example. <laughs> the 90s were not a good time for computer hacking. But um, <laughs> she's one I buy. And I really like how much, you know, she brings just as a personality to the character and also is willing to call Bond out on things that a lot of the Bond female leads did not do. Like, they didn't point out the flaws of him as a character. And so, yeah, that's why I go with Natalia. Both solid choices. It's making me rethink mine. So I'm going to put Shayla up first and I'm going to mull. <laughs> <laughs> well, I definitely pick Natalia as well um, because I like the angle too that she's a civilian thrown into like an impossible situation um, and she shines. Like she absolutely takes ownership of her situation and and she crushes it. And I love too that like Cam was saying, how she has a separate mission to bond, but they complement each other. They come together, and it's very complimenting. Uh, and and of course, she's beautiful inside and out. And she does call Bond out on his on on what he's doing. And and I just think she was. I I don't know that there's been a the a better Bond girl since Natalia. I I mean Electra, sure, but she's kind of a villain. I picture her more as a villain. I just think Natalia was such a perfectly well written character and. She just, she's really, really incredible. I think I'm going to be cheeky. My pick, I'm going to move to another column that we've got coming up and I'm going to replace it with Natalia. I mean, for the aforementioned reasons, but it, she's just, if you were ever going to rank all the Bond girls, um, I, I, I think she's got to be in the top five. She she rewrote the script on what the Bond girl could be. Um. So yeah, I mean, but also fair point with M. Yeah, that was clever. I didn't think of that like, at that's all. That's a, a great shout. I mean, I wouldn't call her a Bond girl unless Judy Dench herself called her a Bond girl, which uh, you know she—that's <laughs> what she does. And so I'm, I'm sticking. You don't, uh, you, you don't uh, disagree with Judy Dench. And also, they do write that character in sort of the female lead role. When you, by the time you get to Skyfall, so it's really like the evolution starts in the Brosnan era for sure. Okay, well. The- Talia is taking the best Bond girl. What about the worst? Hmm. Tom. Um, I don't really like the whole idea of a worst Bond girl. Um, I had a few names on here. I tell you what, I'm going to go with, and I'm and I'm going to go with this because, simply because of her name. <laughs> this is from the world is not enough. Do you know the <laughs> doctor that treats Bond is called Doctor Molly Warmflash? Yeah. Um, mm. And I wasn't aware of this until I was looking it up earlier. And for the very re- reason that her name is Molly Warmflash, which is just an absolutely outrageous name. Um, so, yeah, world is not enough, Dr. Wall- Molly Warmflash. Outside the box thinking, again, I like it, Tom. <laughs> Cam. 
I also have to go with a character who's a doctor from The World Is Not Enough, and that's Dr. Christmas Jones. <laughs> um, also with an awkward name. <laughs> the World Is Not Enough. You know, you got Electra up on the top tier, and then you've got other characters who are a little iffier. Christmas Jones, I'm not here to bag on Denise Richards, who I think was hired to do the job she did. But, like, when you look at Natalia, when you look at why Lynn in Tomorrow Never Dies... They were trying to write interesting characters. And, like, Denise Richards was given nothing. Her character does two things. She gives a lot of exposition, and she acts jealous over Bond and Electra. There's no interesting dynamic here. So I hold the blame for um, Christmas Jones more against the writers and the, you know, the creative team around Denise Richards than I do her performance. Like, is it a great performance? No. But a lot of actors would struggle with what they're given on the page with this one. It's like all their writing went to Electra, and then that was it. Like yeah. all of the power that they had went to the Electra character. Yeah, it's such a bipolar film in that sense. Like it's it's literally both sides of that spectrum: great and dreadful. Um, Shayla, what have you got? So I went with Paris Carver um, because I just don't really think Terry Hatcher is a good actress. Um, I mean, some, I'm sure some people do, and that's really cool. Uh, just my own opinion. I don't, she didn't, she didn't sell her past with Bond. Like I believed it with Pierce. I was like, yeah, okay. Like they had a past, but with her, I, it, it, there wasn't enough depth to her or something. I mean, she's not given much to do and, and that's not Terry Hatcher's fault, but I just felt like she kind of, she fell flat and I didn't quite buy the chemistry between the two of them. Like I bought the whole him you know the past thing like i believe that they had a past but i their chemistry still was kind of weird so it's definitely paris for me i know there was like behind the scenes tension well i heard there was behind the scenes tension with the two and of course i think she was pregnant at the time so they had to sort of rush her filming so i can understand why there wasn't a great chemistry there but um for a character that was meant to be kind of this tracy-esque character i didn't feel that i didn't feel the heat Pretty tough to establish that in two scenes. <laughs> they wanted Mon- Monica Bellucci for that role, um, and uh, she declined, I think. Um, or they couldn't get her for whatever reason. But it is a great concept. You know, the, the first Bond girl that has a history with Bond before they meet together on screen, which mm-hmm. is just ripe for potential. But you're right. I think it was just completely missed, a completely missed opportunity. Well, it looks like Christmas is coming twice this year because that is also (laughs) my choice and and i am here to bag on denise richards i I, i'm gonna take shots on this one because and i did on the episode too i am i'm no fan of, of her performance i mean this is the lady who was on 30 rock years afterwards saying she played a nuclear psychiatrist in the james bong film so you know i mean that was parody and she meant it in jest of course but then it wasn't written by her either um a character that was written for a punchline. Nothing else to it. Yeah, and I remember that they were looking to cast Tiffany Thiessen as well. Like, she was up for the role. It does seem like they were kind of just going with kind of the popular sort of TV or pop culture actresses of the time. Like, they weren't looking for actors the way they were with, you know, Sophie Marceau, for example. When they hire her for Electric King, they're looking for someone who can really deliver a dynamic performance. It seems like with Christmas Jones, it was much more like set decoration 
Which is unfortunate because, as as we've said, the world is not enough. Does some fantastic things with its female characters. It just also squanders that. Yeah. Um. So Natalia's winning best, and Doctor Christmas Jones is winning worst. What a surprise on the worst one. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think she's that bad. I thought everyone would choose Madonna to be honest. I suppose she would count as a Bond girl. Yeah. Sure. Um. I mean, there, there is a category she might appear in later, to be fair. <laughs> Spoilers. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Coming soon. Well, let's move on now to allies. Best Bond allies. We'll keep the order from last time, Tom. You're up. It's, it was actually your suggestion, so we hope you've got a good one. Yeah, I mean, um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go with Q just because, you know, Desmond Llewellyn and he's just such a huge part for me of the Brosnan era you know it's the last films that he appears in with Bond and that that just is a connection to the heritage of Bond and I know he was really struggling at the time to make these films I think he had like massive cue cards that he would read from but he just you know he just brings he just makes them Bond films right like he's just that safe pair of gnarly hands that comes in and does the jokes and worked just worked so beautifully with Piers Brosnan um so yeah I'm gonna go with Q I know it's a bit of an obvious one and then my backup would have been uh, Wade because I just think he's great I mean it's, it's such a shame and, and obviously you know wishes for fishes that he didn't make the the 20th film because that was a celebration of everything that had come before and, and that's him you know if, if he yeah. had been in that scene in that treasure trove full of you know previous gadgets that would have been such a magical scene yeah. mm-hmm. um but hey, say la vie, Cam, what have you got? So for best, I got Zukovsky, uh, who pops up in both uh, Goldeneye and The World Is Not Enough. I think he's more fun in The World Is Not Enough. I like the danger of the character, but he's given, you know, just a little bit to do in Goldeneye. And they figured out how to pay him off so well. Robbie Coltrane is fantastic. We didn't get a Felix Leiter, and Felix is a very watery character at the best of times, um, really up until uh, more recent days of, you know, the depictions we get in the uh, Craig era. But Jack Wade didn't deliver what I was really hoping for in terms of kind of that ally character that would, you know, recur throughout the Brosnan era. But Zakowski did. He was magnetic on screen, and his exit is amazing, where he's pointing the gun and does the wink and freeze Bond as his final act. So it, yeah, you know, there's a little bit of a redemption arc built into this character who was presented as not a particularly nice dude when we first met him. I mean, he gets a scene where he gets to like have two machine guns at one time, looking like a badass. What a way to go! True. Yeah. Um, solid choice, Shayla. What have you got? I also went with Zukovsky, um, because he literally saves Bond's life. Like Bond would have died in that room in Maiden's Tower had he not come in with his cool cane gun. And I just, and I love too how they start off kind of more prickly, like in Goldeneye, um, he tries to shoot his leg and like, you know, to make it even. But so I think it's cool that he like overcame his dislike for Bond for doing that to him and and then become such a great ally and, and a lot of help. So, but Q was a good one too. I wish I would have thought of, I did, like Q's so obvious I didn't think of <laughs> him, but I love him too. <laughs> Well, you know, it's nice to know that Hagrid saved James Bond's life. (laughs) He's a wizard. You're a double O, James. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I actually, I said I I had moved one from my Bond girl to this. 
And I'm not going to win this round because no one else has voted for her. But I'm going for Waylin. Yep. Mm, okay. Again, she would have been my pick for Bond Girl, but because I wanted to throw that one to Natalia. Waylin is fantastic. The only thing that holds her back necessarily from being the best Bond Girl in that category is because the ending of her character is just very poorly written in my book. She shouldn't have been romantically interested in James. But what if she wasn't? What if she is just like him? And he, she was just letting off steam on this stealth boat. I mean, they're both agents, and they they spent all this time together. Maybe she just was like, "Yeah, we killed the bad guy. Let's go. Let's bone." <laughs> kind of like Jinx. So yeah. hey, I mean, because that, that never like that aspect never bothered me because I just kind of always thought they were just both spies doing the spy thing. Uh, okay, I, I'll accept that, and that's a very valid point. I will also argue I didn't like the fact that she had to be saved. Yes, agreed. Yeah, I mean, me and Cam rewrote it in the episode with uh, uh, Janine Smith, Cam's sister, and our our idea was, you know, it's Bond in the water. Waylin has to save him. She fights Stamper. That's more interesting yeah. to me. I agree. That would be way cooler. Also, getting her back and dying another day, which they did plan for a little while, would have been fun. Yeah, that would have been cool. I, Jinx Johnson is okay you know she has her ups and her downs but it feels like in many ways a similar character to wyland and one that's not as good yep yep so zukovsky is winning best as for worst tom well if it's going to be q for best then it's going to be john cleese as what do they call him r is it r r, r. Uh, as the worst i just think he's dreadful i just i really i can't really? stand him in this in the hot take He's just irritating for me, especially when like put next to uh, Desmond. Uh, it, Desmond's is just such a pure performance, whereas John ha John Cleese is just so hammy and over the top. He's just so um, he just doesn't fit the Bond world for me. So for that reason, it's John Cleese. And I, you know, I love Monty Python. Don't really like John Cleese uh, latter latterly, but. Um, He's just not, he just doesn't belong in the Bond film. So for me, him. It almost feels like he's winking at the screen when he's being Q. Like he's in on the joke. Whereas Desmond Llewellyn's was, I mean, I don't want to say deadly serious, but he was quite serious. He was the exasperated uncle, right? He was like, you know, yeah. he was there to sort of help Bond, but like uh, was always, you know, looking down, sl slightly peeved by what he was getting up to. But. Cleese is his character. I just, what is he? He's just a clown. It's just ridiculous. I'm not into it. That's it. Well, okay. Silly walking over to Cam. What have you got? Admiral Roebuck. <laughs> <laughs> yes. This is the deep now, cut that I want. <laughs> I don't know if anyone remembers Admiral Roebuck. He's the like very stuffy... Um, Navy guy who's squabbling with Judy Dench at the start of Tomorrow Never Dies while Bond's on the mission at the uh, terrorist arms bazaar. And his whole job is to say things like, what's Bond doing? And then to be disapproving of everything that's going on. He's the character that's just put there to be wrong so that M can be right. So I call Admiral Roebuck. <laughs> <laughs> Finally. I did not see Roebuck coming. That is a great choice. I wish I'd thought that deep into it. Wow. I have to rethink my choice. Shayla? I actually went with um, Dr. Molly Warmflash because she should never have cleared Bond mm -hmm. for duty. Not to say that, I mean, I mean, personally, I think that his 
arm should have been hanging and he shouldn't have been, been able to use it by the time World is Not Enough is over. It, it magically survived an avalanche, the whole Zukovsky's caviar factory. But I, I pick her because she, she should not have gone against her doctor's license to clear him for duty, no matter what. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. <laughs> Very unprofessional, yeah. Dr. Warmflash. Yep. And I mean, money penny. she kind of gives it to her when she's like, to the job in hand or whatever she says. So. <laughs> oh, money penny. I hadn't thought of that. I think the VR no. goggles kind of. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that that's what I was thinking. A, like, I, a real the question idea of, mark. Yeah, like the idea of someone's using my image in their VR sexual fantasies. I'm not sure I want them on my team. They might be my worst ally. Um, she's tied with her or Jinx. Like, Jinx is pretty bad. Jinx is pretty bad. I don't know. I could learn to like her if I had the time. (laughs) (sighs) You couldn't go an episode without saying it, could you? You had to say it the once. No. (laughs) Um, Sod it. I'm going for Money Penny as as the worst ally. How how dare she use Bond's image to please herself like that? Disgusting. (laughs) Disgusting filth. (laughs) Samantha Bond, I disapprove of you. I don't feel like they ever got a good angle on the Samantha Bond Monty Penny. Like, mm. you completely understand the point of the Lois Maxwell one. But even, like, when you get to the Dalton era, Carolyn Bliss is given very little to do. And Samantha Bond, they clearly wanted to build up Monty Penny a little more. But it also felt like, I don't know, kind of repeat what they did with Lois Maxwell, but also have her, you know, make a lot of cutting comments. But it just never really. I have a hard time really imagining there's a lot of real diehard Samantha Bond, Monty Penny fans, especially compared to what we got post that with like uh, Naomi Harris in, you know, the uh, Craig era. Don't ask. <laughs> Don't tell. <laughs> Don't tell. <laughs> um, okay, so for allies, the best is Sukovsky and the worst. Did we have a consensus, guys? No. Was there two? No. I, I had, I had wow. Warm Flash in my worst Bond girl, so I think maybe Warm Flash should get it. Okay, yeah, I like that. We'll use a vote from yeah. another one. So uh, is it, is it Ho- Molly Warm Flash? Doctor. Yeah. Doctor yeah. Molly Warm Flash. Doc, doc, <laughs> I sh- I give her credit. She is a doctor, at least. <laughs> Allegedly. Yeah. <laughs> but um, what have we got next? Let's mosey on over to set pieces. Uh, Cam, favorite set piece? Okay, um, for me, it's the whole destruction of the GoldenEye satellite and the takedown of the fortress at the end of GoldenEye. This sequence has so many cool things going on, whether it's Natalia furiously typing, whether you've got Boris screaming at a computer and shaking it back and forth as the satellite burns up, plus the whole you know Bond versus Trevelyan fistfight and the way they're cross-cutting between these things. It's like the only time in the whole movie the score is actually good as it's kind of this building score of like we're building to the big fireworks at the end. And come on, it ends with the entire station being dropped on top of Trevelyan. Incredible. It's my, you know, a lot of the Bond films of the past would close with these big one army versus another kind of battles. And that's something that the um, the Brosnan era didn't really replicate. But this one feels epic on that sort of level. So that's my favorite. Shayla. <laughs> That's also my favorite. Um, just because the, the, the whole cradle just looks incredible. Like as a set piece, that is gorgeous. I'm sad it's no longer, you know, standing anymore. They mm. they, they tore it down. Um, but 
I mean, Bond and Trevelyan are perfect opponents. You can see in the fight scene that you can see their similar training. They're having a hard time one-upping each other. And then, of course, like Cam said, with thought with you know the frantic typing and Boris freaking out because the satellite's not going how it should. And it just that that whole scene is just it's so tense and and for a moment you're not sure what's going to happen. And I just think that it was just so thrilling. So that one gets my vote for sure. Tom. Well, for the sake of not picking a, a left field choice, I'm just going to stick with my original choice, which was the Goldeneye finale. Um, uh, for the sake of being on the winning side for once, um, it's just fantastic. I mean, it's just a masterpiece in uh, filmmaking, really. When you think about how they made it, and um, you know, they had the sets at Leavesden, they will have the the, the sets. The, the 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 dish itself is in is it? I can't remember Puerto Rico somewhere, or I can't remember. I think so. The lo- yeah, location shoot there, miniature work, um, and you've got like all the different, like you're saying, all the different plots running at the same time, followed by, you know, one of the best fist fights in the Bond uh, history uh, between Alec and uh, and Bond. And just that final killer line, you know, for England, James, no, for me. And then he drops him and it's just such a great moment. So, um, it yeah, that that film for me, I think, Goldeneye, just, it's, it's just a rollicking ride from start to finish. You could have the opening scene, I think, mm. equally uh, on, a, on a level pegging with the finale just because of the way it sets everything up. But uh, yeah, I'm going to stick with the finale of Goldeneye. Martin Campbell is like so fantastic as an action director and one who I think we've really come to appreciate in the years since. And yeah, crazy to think this is was a cheap Bond film as well. They had a lower budget than many of the other films around it, uh, especially much lower than Tomorrow Never Dies and um, even possibly even Living Daylights, which seems crazy. But uh, yeah, it was a cheap Bond film to make, but he put every single cent penny on the screen, right? It was incredible, an incredible achievement. And did you guys ever see photos of behind the scenes of the very final like cradle fight when Trevelyan and Bond are down on that little disc? Like Brosnan's actually standing and and like and um sean bean is just like kind of being held in a position but like brosnan has footing on the ground and i just like it's so cool to watch it now and think that because i would never Mm. think that but and it and i think it's such a clever cool way that they that they accomplished that and and, like it's just so cool to see him with his foot on the ground you're like what no you're in the air Well, this might be our first uh, full house because I am also choosing the dish fight. Anything that has like a rag doll being chucked off of something in any film has my vote. There, there is a, a brief scene of Trevelyan kind of not, it's not actually a person. It's like one of those little rag doll crash test dummies and uh, they always get a laugh out of me. So uh, yeah, got to be the dish fight in Goldeneye. He breaks his leg in like 18 places. Like when you watch yeah. him fall, that <laughs> leg, woof, that's gone. It's like paste. Yeah. <laughs> um, that level's also a nightmare in the double uh, O mode on the Goldeneye Oof. video game, but very well replicated. Yep. Pivoting over then. Worst cam. This one is so, so easy. Um, it's the whole paragliding in front of the tidal wave of ice in Die Another Day. You can also throw in the rocket car out running the sunbeam. You can throw in the you know, the car hanging over the cliff. That trifecta of hor- CG horrors is just brutal. And even though we're not naming some of the sequences, you know, like, say, the takedown of the stealth boat in Tomorrow Never Dies, for example, um, as, a, as a best one, um, they're all really effective as practical action. Like, they all work. You may not hold them at the best, but they're really effective. 
there's nothing effective about any of this paragliding stuff. It looks awful. My father actually um, rewatched the movie uh, Die Another Day just the other night um, in advance of our episode, Scott. And uh, he was just like, that looks awful. Like, it looks so tacky now. And yeah, it, it didn't look great then. I remember my friend complaining about it even at the time. And it is just aged the worst of maybe any like um, effect shot in any of the Bond films. It's really up there. We we recently did a guest spot, Cam and I, on another podcast called Flix Watcher, and we watched a film called Tremors, which I'm sure you're all familiar with. And we spent a lot of time talking about practical effects and how they just seem to age beautifully. Uh, and it's actually crazy to think that a film that came out in 2002 looks older than Doctor No. Yeah. Mm. Uh, what about you, Tom? Uh, it's on my list as well, the windsurfing, the ice tsunami. Um, it's just... Yeah, just dreadful. It just looks bad. Um, and uh, I think everyone involved um, has disowned it. I think, um, I know Vic Armstrong, who did a lot of the practical stunts on that film, you know, was very disappointed that they went very CGI with that. There are some practical parts to it. I think you, there are pictures of um, Brosnan hanging from something with the, with the board underneath him. But yeah, it just looks, it just looks dreadful. So for that... Um, You've got my vote as well. Shayla, are you keeping us on ice? I am absolutely keeping us on ice. Because um, it, you know, it, it is just awful. And I remember, like, I was 12 years old when I went to go see Die Another Day in theaters. And I just remember telling my mom how mad I was when that scene was happening. I was like, Mom, they never do this. Bond always does stunts for real. This is so maddening. And for that reason, for just, like, hurting 12-year-old Shayla, that one definitely gets the worst. <laughs> Well, uh, for that very reason, I have to pick the same. How dare they offend 12-year-old Shayla? <laughs> right? I, it, it, it's the worst thing you could ever do. No, but seriously, that is... Oh, I, I, I'll, actually, I'm going to use Tom's word again. It's egregious. It's egregious. It is <laughs> It is dreadful and offensive. And it, I mean, the film's not great, but that really is the albatross around its neck. And it's never going to look good. Like, it's never going to age no. well. It's always going to look like garbage. Yeah. It's a shame. It's like when you watch um, the special editions of Star Wars as well, mm. you know, when you're watching that and and they, you you see the inserts that George Lucas put in in 97 or whatever it was. They just stick out so badly and they just make that film look worse than a film that was like that 20, 20 years older than it. It just... It just doesn't make any sense. And you can see where they're, you know, they're trying to push the boundaries. They're trying to work at the cutting edge of technology, but it just didn't work. Um, and there's a lot of films around that time where the CG is just unwatchable. You know, the Mummy films spring to mind as well. Uh, the where, Scorpion King. Um, the CGI. Just yeah. Really, yeah, the Scorpion King. Yeah. That really, is rough. Really, really takes you out of the experience. Yeah. I always think of uh, Mortal Kombat Annihilation or uh, Spawn as well. Those were unbelievable. Well, it's uh, two clear runs. We've swept the board with these. So the GoldenEye dish is the best and the uh, Tsunami Surfing, as it's been come to known as, is is the worst. Um, Yeah, I don't think many people will at us about those ones. (laughs) No. No. Moving on, we have quip time so best worst and why on the quips now i want this done in the character of the person I want, I want the voices if you can if you can muster it if you can muster it uh let's go for 
Cam. No more foreplay. There we go. <laughs> That's my horrible British accent. Embarrassing. Atrocious. <laughs> what was that? <laughs> that was my Kevin Costner British accent. Um, <laughs> yes. So this line delivered to Xenia in the bath scene in Goldeneye is awesome. It shows kind of the deadly edge of Bond, but I remember it the most because of the trailers, the way the music would build, and then you'd get that line, and then the da-na-na-na-na, and it was just like, hell yeah, devil horns in the air, Bond is back, baby. So I go with this line. Okay, okay. Uh, that might be the worst British accent I have ever heard. And and just to be fair, guys, he speaks to me for at least five hours every week. So he hears a British guy every week, so I don't know how he's messed that up. I cannot do accents to save my life at all. I've never been able to. I'm really to. interested to hear your worst one now, especially if it's another accent. Mm. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, let's see if you can save us, Tom. All right, why don't we go to Shayla first? I feel like um, she never gets the chance to go and get the best ones in. Okay, all right, all right, all right. He's changing the order. Tom's playing his, uh, his veto card. Shayla, you're up. <laughs> I don't know any doctor jokes. <laughs> I think I don't know any doctor jokes. I think that's so funny in the world is not enough because it's more of like a a clever quip. Like it's not Christmas only comes once a year, whatever. You know, it's like he I just I thought it was like a really smart quip and and it doesn't make you roll your eyes. So, I don't know any doctor jokes. Okay. Yeah, very respectable one and not a bad accent unlike Cam. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, I, I think I'm going to mess Tom around completely. I'm going to go next. He's going to go last now, thanks to me. Um, <laughs> my one's always a bit of a... It, maybe not everyone's favourite, but it, it never fails to make me laugh. And I haven't got to put on an accent, fortunately. And it's simply, they'll print anything these days. I mm. love that one. That's so mm. good. Wait, was that your Bond accent? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like an amalgamation of all the Bonds. I could do a Sean Connery pretty well, but he didn't say that yeah. one. But pretend you did. Yeah. Say it yeah. as Connery right now. Well, they'll print anything these days. Yes! <laughs> yeah, that'll work, yeah. Yeah, when we do, like, um, Connery quips, I can, like, totally fake my way through those. But if you're asking me to imitate Pierce Brosnan, forget it. I mean, his accent's already... What does he sound like? Well, his accent is all over the place. Okay, Tom. Come on in. But that one, that one always reminds me of the one from um, On a Majesty's Secret Service, where he's got a lot mm. of guts. Because he's, you know, they're both like blood-related mm. ones, but um, I quite like that one. Anyway, uh, so for mine, I'm going with. Would you like to check my figures? Oh, I'm sure they're perfectly rounded. Mm. Which, uh, it's just the way he delivers it. He even, I think, he almost looks at the camera when he does he, it. He like it's bites so into good. it. He bites into Ta-da! his words. He's like, oh, yeah, <laughs> nailed it. It's like he knows he's doing it. He just loves it. Yeah, so that's for me. Uh, no consensus on that one, but to be fair, they were all hits. Uh, let's go for the worst. We had Cam first. Take it away. So my runner-up is Renard's, Welcome to our nuclear family! Like, that one is <laughs> brutal, brutal, brutal. But Pierce Brosnan's given a lot of bad ones, and there's one I feel like he just dies with. And it's the moment where he meets Mr. Kill, and <laughs> he goes... <laughs> 
Oh, I can't do a Pierce Brosnan. I have to like, I have to like channel a British accent with layers of Irish accent worked into it. This is well beyond my talent level. I need to channel like my Keanu Reeves in Bram Stoker's Dracula here. Um, it's sort of a now. There's an a. <laughs> I sound like I sound like Mr. Burns. <laughs> I'm just gonna say it now. There's a name to die for. So. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I'm sparing the listeners the agony of me to, like just dragging that one out. Yeah, that line is awful and the setup is bad, the delivery's bad, the joke is bad. It's like the character's just been named for mm. the for the joke, but the joke's yeah. not good enough. It's like it's just such a waste of everything. And they cut yeah. away from it so quickly because they know it's not funny. It's just like he says yeah. it, it's like, up oh, next scene, move, move, move. <laughs> yeah. Uh yeah, not a not a good one. Shayla? Well, speaking of quips that were only created because a character was named something, um, I thought Christmas only comes once a year. Yeah. I don't like it. I don't like it. It's bad. Don't like it. Don't like it. No. It's bad. It's bad. Like, it's bad. That's the only reason they named her Christmas. And it's like, but why? Have you ever met anybody named Christmas? Anybody? No, me neither. No, but I've also never met anyone named Peaceful Fountains of Desire, to be fair. <laughs> fair point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That could be more of a work name, though. Like, that might not be her real name, maybe. Sure. Professional name. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> well, here's the question, though. You know, you pick that Christmas line from the end of World is Not Enough. Is that the best remembered Brosnan quip? I think it might I be. I think it might be. Yeah. yeah. That's kind of concerning, isn't it? Like, it's a, that's a hell it's of a, a legacy. It's a shame, because he had good ones, and that's not one that should be remembered for his run. No. But that's one that is. He, the other one might be the For England James No For Me. True. That 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 does does get sort of memed quite a lot. Um. Okay. Now my one has like a setup line, so I'm gonna have to try and read that in someone else's voice, and then read it in the other guy's voice for the actual line itself. So, <clears throat> what do predators do at night? They feast like there's no tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> what was that line? What was that? That entire scene's in, in, insane. But, you know, that, even the bird-watching bit at the beginning, or like uh, ornithologist, that's a mouthful. Ugh. It's pure cringe. That, that scene may be my favorite scene in the entire movie because it is such a fascinating study of actors being given unspeakable dialogue and delivering it with, like, an amount of enthusiasm that goes far beyond what the paycheck demanded. <laughs> Mojito, <laughs> and it almost kind of feels like because where where I just rewatched Die Another Day actually, and I I found the dialogue very good up to that scene where it almost feels like the writers, if I may say this on air, it feels like they started writing with the other head as soon as Halle mm. Berry came on screen because mm. it just like the dialogue was good up to the scene she arrives and then it's just abysmal. It's I don't know who, who was writing this movie. I oh my gosh. Or it's like they were there to they were there for the shooting of the her emerging from the ocean moment. Then they were like, "Quick, can you get, right guys write some dialogue?" Yeah. And they were just like, "Boom!" <laughs> exactly, exactly. Like it's it's shocking how much the film decreases once that yeah. scene happens. After Mojito, it's, it's oh. Uh, Tom, finish us off. So my f uh, the worst quip for me is. It's sort of a sight gag in itself, so it doesn't really work on its on its own, but it's between Jinx and Bond. And it's sort of after their uh, uh, 
what should we say um conjunction <laughs> she says jinx you can it's a dark screen and jinx says wait don't pull it out uh, i'm not finished uh, with it yet uh, and then you see bond and it's a diamond that he's taking out of her belly button and he says see it's a perfect fit <sighs> and it's just uh even written down spoken it's just all it's horrible <laughs> it's horrible and why does she want a diamond there in the first place like what is the benefit of that and isn't that painful? You're laying on sharp objects. You got it. Oh, man. Logic is out the window at that point. Um, I'm out the window by that point. <laughs> well, good thing it's over. <laughs> <laughs> I remember the audience groaning at the Christmas Jones line. Whereas I feel like by the time they made it to the end of Die Another Day, they're like, yeah, sure. This all fits. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think we all got the thrust of that one. Mm. 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 That's unfortunate. Well, yeah, that, that really is unfortunate. But thanks everyone for your impressions. Uh, we we now know Cam cannot do an accent to save his life, so I I will be going back to this in the future. Don't you worry. <laughs> okay, last up, song time. Uh, if you can sing it, by all means. If not, just tell me the name of the track. Cam's going to sing them all, obviously. <laughs> He's enthused about that. <laughs> okay, um, we'll go in the same order as last time. Cam, best song. Okay, I'll go with Golden Eye. Yeah, the Tina Turner song from Golden Eye. I love it. It was written by Bono and uh, the and uh, the Edge. Um, this one in particular to me feels like it's doing more of a modern Bond, while at the same time paying tribute with like Shirley Bassey, for example. Like Tina Turner is a great choice for it. I love the imagery of the whole sequence. And it's one of the, like, when I look at the Brosnan era of music, it's the one I go back to the most. It's the one I will regularly play, you know, through my iPhone. So for me, Tina Turner is the classic one out of out of the four. So I'm curious where everyone else stands on this. Well, Cam, you're just a big Tina Turner fan, let's be honest. You just play her straight out of your iPhone all the time. We don't need another hero, Scott. <laughs> Shayla, what have you got? I went with The World Is Not Enough um, by Garbage. I uh, just, I I love it. it. It's got such a beautiful sound. And what the thing I really like about it is that it's written from Electra's perspective. I think that's a really cool take of, on a Bond theme. Um, but I got to ask Cam a question. Cam, have you ever heard the demo of Goldeneye sung by Bono? I haven't, no. So <laughs> it's worth. He just doesn't to. have a voice. Like I can't picture Bono hitting high notes. Oh, he doesn't. That's the fun part. That go listen to it. <laughs> Is he just like crooning his way through it? Like he, it's more. It, it, it kind of feels like a phoned-in performance. Like he was just trying to show Tina kind of like right. what his idea was. But it is so worth a listen. So if you guys haven't heard it, it is just. It's not Tina Turner. I'll tell you that. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna back Shayla up with the world is not enough. You don't need me to sing it. You'll be fine without it. Uh, Tom, what have you got? I also had the world is not enough with garbage and uh, David Arnold. I think it's a fantastic theme song for the reasons that Shayla mentioned. You know, it's written from a different point point of view. Um, it's very memorable. Um, out of the four, I think actually Brosnan has four really good songs. Uh, Die another day isn't a great Bond song, but um, it's uh, I think it's a decent 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 enough song. Um, but, um, yeah, I think the world is not enough. I, I've got to say, an honorable mention to the Scott Walker song that was written for the, the world is not enough, uh, theme, um, score. I don't know if you've heard this, it's called only myself to blame. And it is, 
uh, written from the point of view of James Bond after he's retired. And it's fantastic. It's it's not right for the film. It's not right for the moment. But like it is in itself, as a Bond, as a bit Bond song, it is fantastic. And I would definitely recommend seeking that out and have a listen to that as well. I wrote it down. Deep cut. That's what we like. <laughs> uh, that's, that's why you do the A to Z. To be fair, we have to d- delve deep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Worst. I think this uh, this might sweep the board. Cam. Yeah, um, I have to go with Madonna, Die Another Day, Sigmund Freud, analyze this. <laughs> I, I said it in the episode, and I'll go back to it, which is I think if you just hired Madonna in a different era, as opposed to when she's doing the kind of Euro electro dance kind of thing, we may have gotten a really great all-timer Bond song. This one, it's just tonally it feels weird with like Bond being tortured over like the lyrics of this song, even though the lyrics are touching on things that are actually happening, it still feels weird. Like the energy of the song is all over the place. I've just never been able to connect with this one. And even Bond songs I don't like, at a certain point I'll grow to appreciate something about them. This one has never happened. Uh, My runner-up was the uh, Eric Serra song from the end of GoldenEye, which I think it's called like the Experience of Love or something like that. (laughs) Yeah. Abysmal. Absolutely abysmal. But because like no one really even knows what that is, I'll say Die Another Day. Yeah, I think Die Another Day is the easy answer, but uh, I, uh, I'm i interested to see if Shayla has anything different. No, it's Die Another Day uh, for yeah. me, although Experience of Love is awful as well. Um, but uh, just Die Another Day, like I actually do enjoy it as a song. I don't skip it when it comes on. Like there are some Bond songs like Goldfinger and um, You Only Live Twice that mm. I don't really listen to. I know that's a little controversial um but uh i'm happy to hear someone else say you only live twice isn't one that jumps out to you because i'm in the same boat actually it's not one of my favorites. yeah like it just it's an an all-time high uh you know that oh that one i gotta go for (laughs) all-time high is that is am listening to the purest (laughs) that's fair but like i just find with dine of the day it feels like they're are parts missing or like that she's buffering as she's singing or something like it just has such a weird sound and it's a shame that they didn't try I don't know anything else because like where where it's playing over the torture that's the that's an insane thing that's happening to bond he's never been captured and tortured before and we're listening to techno like it just mm, yeah. it doesn't really it doesn't really work but i mean i still enjoy it as a song but yeah it's definitely the worst i i, I don't really have to reiterate anymore i do not like that song in dying her day it's awful um <clears throat> i will also say a dishonorable mention for cheryl crow I did not like Tomorrow Never Dies as a song, personally. Right. I find her voice to be quite, like, just shrill. It like, kind of seems like she's reaching. Yeah, and I just can't listen to it. I, I could almost, I could actually listen to Dine of the Day as a pop song and be like, ugh, okay. I think Tom said it, actually. Um, and that's yeah. fine. But like, it's a radio song, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. You could hear it on the radio and it's, it's background noise whilst you're making your lunch. But Tomorrow Never Dies, it just offends me. It's a shame they didn't go with Surrender by Katie Lang. Exactly. That is far mm-hmm. superior. Yes. Agreed. It's, yeah. it's so Bondian and I love that it's fit into the score. So it already feels like it mm-hmm. should be there and it should have been the theme, but unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, it's entirely just commerce driven that they wanted a more recognizable pop artist at the time and they thought they could sell more, I guess, singles or whatever with Sheryl Crow. I don't really know that it worked though. I don't think the Sheryl Crow song really connected with people. It wasn't like suddenly that became like one of the big hit songs on the radio. It does get a bit of radio play here still. Really? I've heard yeah. it from time. Not I've over heard here. It from time to time. Not here either. But on like oldies channels, not on 
modern pop channels. To be fair, like, uh, you know, Shayla, would you say that, like, of the Brosnan era, which songs did get play over here in Canada? I mean, the Madonna one probably got the most, right? Yeah, I would say probably. I don't really even remember. Like, the only song I ever hear over here is Nobody Does It Better. That's the only song I've heard on the radio. Um, but I imagine it probably would be Madonna over here. I hear View to a Kill played yeah. near the Duran Duran one. Um, yeah. I also actually hear For Your Eyes Only sometimes. Living Daylights. Sheena Easton yeah. song. Living Daylights, yeah. Um, Live and Let Die as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, Live and Let Die. Yeah, Skyfall as well. You know, obviously that one exploded. But beyond that group, not really. I don't think anything else jumps out. Does a Sam Smith one not get play over there? Because we still get that quite a lot on the radio. I've never heard it on the radio, which I'm yeah. really happy maybe, for. Yeah, me too. Maybe on radio stations I don't listen to. Like Maybe if you put on like an adult contemporary station at the time, they would have played it. But mm. that's not what I would be listening to. I literally heard it today, funnily enough. Oh, that is such a shame. Mm. That is such a shame. I'm here for you to get someone to talk to you about it. <laughs> <laughs> that's what we're here for. Uh, Tom? Yeah, Die Another Day. There's not much more to say about it. But I think you're right. Madonna, any other time, even like a few years before when she was working with William Orbit, would have been a better fit. But I think she'd actually fallen out with William Orbit, I think. Um, And had moved on to to Mirways, I think his name was. And he's the guy that produced that song. It's just the wrong, wrong song for that film. Just not good. I like the clicking sounds at the start that are sort of timed with the scorpion tails. Mm. I like that. I'll that give it cool. that. That's the only, yeah, that's the only kind thing I can say about the Die Another Day song. You, you definitely reached for that one, didn't you? I did, yeah. Well, The World Is Not Enough has run away with the victory on Best Bond Song, and the defeat obviously goes to, I say obviously, Die Another Day. Shock horror. Hmm. But let's move on to looking back now in our sort of final section as we begin to wrap up on the legacy of the Brosnan Bond. What is his legacy? And I think I'll start us off on this one. For me, there's two parts to what Brosnan's legacy is. The first part is he brought a ton of fans in. And I think three out of the four of us owe a lot of our Bond love to Brosnan. I know Cam was an earlier adopter um, from the sounds of it, but, you know, Goldeneye brought me to the game. Uh, and I, I'm thankful for that. And that's that's part of his legacy. And the other part is maybe not what he did, but what his films allowed the characters around him to begin to do. So we had more developed villains. We had better developed Bond girls, Bond allies, all because of these films, which got us to the Craigs. So I think his legacy for me personally is the elevation of all of the other characters in the Bond film. So now it's not necessarily just his film. Um, what do you think, Tom? Yeah, I think that uh, over those four films, he took Bond from obscurity almost, or for the verge of obscurity with, with License to Kill and Living Daylights to being a bona fide blockbuster series again, right? It was, Die Another Day was the biggest, highest grossing film in the in the series. It's like where he left was that the series was on a high point, maybe not critically, but definitely commercially and also as you say about bringing in legions of fans it's he's the video game bond as well he starred in six video games as bond which is even bigger almost in a way to securing a new generation of fans than the films themselves possibly so um that will be the legacy unfortunately 
with Dying of the Day, it provided the series with its biggest shark jumping moment, which would then lead to the hard reboot, which gave us the Craig era, which then, you know, set up for another 15 years or however long Craig's been doing it for. So, um, you know, I think his era may not be looked upon as the greatest era of Bond, but it, it definitely, definitely a crucial one, let's say. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. What do you think, Shayla? Well, I mean, everything that was said is already has been brilliant. And like, you know, he did bring Bond into a new era and it was successful, you know, like, and and I appreciate too, just like the cinematic universe that his, his films have created, which you guys touched on with the, with all the other characters, but I, all of the secondary characters like um, Robinson and Tanner, they they're just all so compelling. And and so, and I mean, you know, he had, he had four really fun films and he should be proud of that. And he was here for a good time, not a long time. Uh, wish we had him longer, but he, he should be proud in what he, what he created and, and where he took Bond. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Cam? Yeah, I think the thing that Brosnan really did as well is he made Bond cool again. Um, I don't know that by the time you get to those latter era Roger Moore films, people are like, man, this guy's cool. Um, he's fun. They go and see his movies, but I don't think Bond's cool. And I think Dalton, he was a little too icy, I think, for audiences to really connect with. Whereas it feels like Brosnan made it cool, not just for, you know, people returning to the franchise, but for young people who are playing the video games. Like the mm -hmm. the impact of the GoldenEye 64 game can't be, um, you know, undervalued. Like that game really did change the game in terms of bringing fans to the table and getting them invested in Bond. So I feel like even though, you know, Die Another Day... Um, doesn't turn out great and doesn't maybe wow people it gets people invested and excited in a franchise that they think is cool again it feels revitalized and so when they're putting together casino royale people are genuinely excited to see what's going to come of it like they want to know how are they going to do this and people were angry about daniel craig getting cast and it's because i think there was that association with brosnan you know people were like hey we really loved brosnan we aren't happy about this Daniel Craig casting. So people were invested. And I also just think like it taught them lessons that they probably should have learned earlier. Um, and I'm, I mean, Eon Productions that they took, they made a lot of good strides with Brosnan, you know, the hiring of Judy Dench, characters like Natalia and Y Lin. But you saw that like when they stepped wrong, say with Christmas Jones or to a lesser degree, but still kind of, you know, fans weren't big on Jinx, for example. Mm -hmm. They heard about it. The public response was not good. And I think it kind of maybe scared them straight a bit so that they actually wrote really interesting characters in Vesper going forward, in Camille, in Quantum. Um, it feels like they became more invested in writing these characters as fully dimensional as they could and were willing to. And I think they actually succeeded. And why the Craig era is so loved is because those characters really, you know, have an impact. So... I think they learned a lot through Brosnan. I think they had more successes than failures, but the failures actually taught them something versus like, I don't think when, you know, uh, View to a Kill comes out that they were like, hmm, fans are really angry about this Tanya Roberts character. Let's really change that. I, I just don't know that they were taking those lessons. It's, it's such a weird thing to summarize his bond because it, he'll be the one I go back to the most. I say Sean Connery is my bond, but... Pierce Brosnan was my first Bond. It's kind of like the same with Doctor Who. Like, you always remember your first Doctor. And 
I will always go back to Goldeneye and, and Tomorrow Never Dies as, as two of my favourites. And I'll never shake that. And I think that, for me, again, is personally his legacy. Do you guys have any final thoughts on it, really? I think Goldeneye is top five all-time greatest James Bond films. And that's largely down to Piers Brosnan um, doing such a fantastic job. But in fact, he got better with each Bond film. So he was a great Bond. Just unfortunately, I feel like he maybe didn't have the the hit rate that um, would have made him the best Bond of all time. I think in terms of the, the the films that he was 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 given, and that's where you know the fifth film, Shayla, as 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 you said earlier, really could have secured his his legacy forever. But um, we never got to see it. Well, I think that leads me beautifully onto my sort of final two questions. Um, the first one is just a yes or no. Did it need a fifth? Or are you happy with the era as it is? Uh, let's start with Cam. I would have liked a fifth. Um, and I being I remember being very invested in getting a fifth one at the time. In retrospect, in terms of the fact that Die Another Day scared them into making a really, really great film in Casino Royale, maybe four was the perfect number. It's kind of what it needed, that franchise. Yeah. Okay. Shayla? I, I think he deserved a fifth. And I would have happily set Casino Royale with Daniel Craig aside to get it. Um, I do like Casino Royale with Daniel Craig. I didn't watch it until 2014 because I was so mad. <laughs> about, wow, about, there you go. Yeah, about um, Brosnan getting the boot. But uh, I would have loved to have seen his, his like, you know, a fifth film. Because it kind of bums me out that uh, his Bond ends up with Jinx Johnson, of all people. Like, I just think she was the worst. Like, it's a shame that somehow Natalia couldn't come back in and then he could finish his, his whole tenure with, with Natalia. But, it, you know, I, I, I wish he would have had a fifth. Do you think we would have had Jinx back? <laughs> I'm just saying he landed up with her because that was the last girl we saw him with before his ear was over. Can you imagine, can you imagine we had our dream and they did a fifth one and it was with Jinx? I think I, <laughs> I, might, I might boycott the film. No, but hopefully they'd learn and get a better writer in and actually mm. give her some substance. Mm. How long do you think that relationship would actually last, though? <laughs> Probably not very long. <laughs> no. no. Tom? Yeah, I think for uh, we can't change what's happened, right? There's no point uh, crying over what could have been. Uh, I think the only thing that really makes me consider is that I think Pierce Brosnan really wanted to make another one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they didn't make him make another one because probably because he was asking for too much money. And that's the upsetting part, isn't it? It just comes down to a business decision. Everyone would have loved it. He would have loved it. It probably could have been a Casino Royale version, a different version. And then that would have meant we didn't get the Daniel Craig version. But, um, you know, it is what it is. I think we're going to get, I think there will be a Pierce Brosnan coming back as a spy type film in the near future. I think it has to happen. I think he's at the perfect age for it. He looks great with a beard. And I think we might get another Piers Brosnan type spy film. And I think it'll be fantastic. There's that Mark Miller project that he's just set yeah. on Netflix about this uh, old man spy. It's basically old man Logan, but for a James Bond. And it just looks tailor-made for Brosnan. So I think there's there's still time. It's still time for him to do it. He's having a resurgence because you've also got him signing on to play Dr. Fate in the DC universe. Mm. So now is the time to make yeah. Brosnan bankable once again. And Twitter lit up. 
about that casting. Like I, I was like in heaven because I was just reading all these insanely positive tweets about the casting. Even people who didn't know who Pierce was, they're like, "Oh, this guy looks perfect." It was amazing to be on Twitter when he was announced. I think, despite being Shayla's deputy as sort of uh, you know head of Team Brother on Twitter, I'm going to go with no for a fifth film. I think I, I'm not sure I want to sacrifice Casino Royale just to get a fifth film that may or may not be good. Uh, especially if they kept a lot of the team that was working on Die Another Day into, because it was a successful film financially. Yeah. If they kept that team on, I think we may have been set up for another defeat in like 2004 and they were using more CG and it just looked bad again. Whereas they took a minute, they took a step back and they looked at the bigger picture and came back with, again, arguably one of the top five Bond films of all time. But speaking of rankings... Here's the final question. We need your Bond Brosnan rankings from worst to best. Let's go with Shayla first. Okay, worst to best. So we've got Die Another Day and then mm-hmm. Tomorrow Never Dies, even though that's not even, it's not a bad movie <laughs> at all. Um, and then The World Is Not Enough and then Goldeneye. Yeah, it's solid, solid stuff. Uh, Cam? The worst is Die Another Day and mm-hmm. then A Space. Then another space. Maybe another space. You know, let's just throw in another space. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then we've got The World Is Not Enough. Then Tomorrow Never Dies. Then Goldeneye. So I go in basically descending order from Goldeneye onwards. And that I feel like they really had magic with that first one. And I really am a fan of Tomorrow Never Dies. But it feels like they're kind of losing the inspiration they had. Like it felt like they had really something to prove with Goldeneye. Mm. And they were hungry to revitalize that character. Whereas I feel like they kind of began to rest on their laurels and pick interesting elements like Electra, who's great, or a lot of the stuff in Tomorrow Never Dies I love. Um, but it didn't feel like they had the just that, you know, that drive that they had with um, Goldeneye. Yeah, I can definitely see that. What have you got for us, Tom? Uh, same as Shayla. So Die Another Day, Tomorrow Never Dies, World Is Not Enough. Sp- then a few spaces and then <laughs> and then goldeneye <laughs> it, it's interesting because i i probably come down more on cam's side so it would be die another day the world is not enough Tomorrow never dies goldeneye so the, basically the reverse order but i think it really depends on those two middle films on how i feel on the day if i want a more serious bond film i think the world is not that is actually more of a serious bond film and more interesting but mm-hmm. from a fun standpoint tomorrow never dies beats the world is not enough that's fair I mean, it's just like nonstop. It's just action. Yeah, it's and- yeah, it's just it's just a jolly ride. I also want to just uh, before we wrap up and uh, say goodbye here, I just want to also credit the uh, Brosnan franchise with killing its villains in spectacular fashion every time out. That's something that the other Bonds frequently didn't get to do, and I mean, every villain in the Brosnan franchise dies horribly, horribly. Mm. <laughs> so props to you, Brosnan. Thanks for making that happen. <laughs> What's your favorite death? Quickly. Who have we got? I mean, Sean Beans is amazing, but I, I, the Elliot Carver getting just ground to pieces yeah. with a giant drill is incredible. <laughs> Bond's so close to him when he does that as well, isn't he? He sort of just like sidesteps him and just puts him into this drill and just... He should have been just covered in like guts. Yeah. Know, yeah. yeah. Um, oh, that's a very good question, me. Uh... I'm I'm gonna go for uh, I I want to be like Renard and get like shot through the chest with a a rocket. Uh, sure, yeah. I'll, and like I'll, the I'll dull end, 
the dull end. Like, yeah. that's even worse. Oof. That's got to hurt more. That's got to hurt more. Uh, Shayla? I'm going to go with um, Trevelyan because I just, I cannot get over that leg shatter. Like, it's like, and then and then the, he doesn't even die and has the, has his whole operation fall on top of him. <laughs> oh, my goodness. But, I mean, Gustav Graves was good, too, because I'm, I'm also a big fan cam of the... Uh, well, look, parachutes for the both of us. Whoop, not anymore. Like, I think that's so... <laughs> I think You've got that so... accent down, actually. That's pretty good. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. I've watched that movie more times than I'd like to admit. I, <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, like, I, but it's got to be Trevelyan. Tom? Yeah, I'll just go with Gustav Graves. Uh, Complete the set. It's a very Incredibles-type mm, death, isn't it? It is. You know, getting sucked into the air engine. It's... Um... I was just checking then to see which came out first. And Incredibles came out two years later. So, uh, yeah, Gustav Graves did it first. <laughs> nice. Well, guys, I think that brings to a close our marathon session talking about our man Brosnan. Potentially one of the best Bonds of all time, but we'll leave that up to you. What I want to do right now, though, is thank our brilliant guests. Um, Shayla and Tom, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, thank you for having me. I've uh, been a long-time fan of your show, so it was a pleasure to come on. Oh, thank you. Um, where where can people hear uh, more from you both? Shayla, you first. Where can they hear more from you? Well, I have a YouTube show um, called Sweet Time with Shayla and Chelsea. Uh, we're best friends and we just do a lot of fun competitive games and um, we we write songs and and uh, just have a lot of fun. Um, we You can find us at sweettimeshow.com. And if you want to come chat with me on Twitter about Bond or movies or anything, I am always down for that. And my handle is Shayla, S-H-A-Y-L-A-Y-Y. Or just type Brosnan into yeah, Twitter and she'll find, find you. That's true. Yeah. Just send out a Brosnan tweet. I'll find you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, what about you, Tom? Uh, yeah, you can find me on uh, Twitter at Tom Butler, T-O-M. B-U-T-L-E-R, and then uh, the James Bond A to Z podcast is on all all podcast platforms. We're also on Twitter and Instagram uh, at James Bond A to Z, so A T O Z. Um, but uh, yeah, it's um, uh, always willing to talk Brosnan with anyone uh, on online. So uh, yeah, come find me. Yeah, no, that's awesome, and we'll have links to the show notes for sure for everyone to follow you guys as well. Yeah, again, just thank you both for joining us. Um, it's been an absolute treat. Thank you. Time for a mojito. <laughs> mojito. <laughs> now, before we set course into the stormy seas of the Pierce Brosnan era of James Bond, we took a moment to sit down with Nicholas Sazik, who's, of course, the writer of books like The Bond of the Millennium and The Golden Eye Dossier. You could say he wrote the book on the Pierce Brosnan Bond, and we are looking to, I don't know, complete that saga today with our discussion. So we thought as a good intro, we would talk to him. Yeah, I'm really excited for everyone to hear this. This man, as you said, wrote the book on the Brosnan era, and I think his insights will be very intriguing to a lot of you. So, yeah, without further ado, Cam had the chance to sit down with him, of course. So, Cam, roll that clip. Hey, Nicholas. So my first question for you is, what was your first exposure to the Brosnan Bond? I started with GoldenEye, not in the big screen, because I that was in 1995, and by 1998, uh, I wasn't, I, I mean, I was playing the, the Nintendo 64 game. I didn't own a Nintendo 64, but I went to, to I mean, to a toy store where they were playing it, and that led me to, then I saw a billboard of, Golden Eye, which was the the teaser poster image of you know Pierce with the 
with the Walter PPK mm -hmm. that was announcing the broadcast of the movie on on a TV channel on here in Latin America. And then I I, I urged my dad to to see the film and well that was it. Then came Tomorrow Never Dies on the big screen and I've been a Bond fan ever since. I GoldenEye Tomorrow Never Dies made me want to watch the the old movies and and then I I just played on. Okay. Well, okay. So, what do you think Pierce's main contributions to the franchise were? Well, first of all, I think he, in many ways, he saved the franchise, and he had this something that that is really very important: this uh, generational connection that Connery and Roger had in the sixties, in the seventies. I think Pierce had it in the nineties. You know, I mean. I was an eight-year-old kid, and I saw Pierce with the the gun and the the Walter PPK, and I say, "Wow, this is a special action hero because all the action heroes are always with machine guns and t-shirts." And wow, this man is so so well dressed that this might be different. So he translated the what Bond is about to to the 90s, to the to kids in the 90s, and they. He made a new generation of Bond fans that, I mean, I think that without uh, Pierce's Bond, I mean, he, him and his films, because with a Bond, the success of a Bond film is never kind of attached to the, to the leading man, but I think that uh, his Bond was the, the introduction for many young kids to the, to the world, to the entire world of James Bond, not only his movies, but the Fleming novels, the video games, the comics. I doubt we had uh, uh, Bond fans in, the, in their 30s or 40s without Pierce's Bond. I think all the Bond fans without Brosnan would be like 60 or 50. So they, I think that's his legacy. He People went from doubting if Bond would survive the 90s and in the blink of an eye, by 1999, we had three Bond movies, and we are discussing how to bring Bond to the 21st century, as it happens in, in Day and Our Day. Right. Okay, so so much is said about, you know, that um, Roger Moore was the comedic Bond, Dalton's the intense Bond. Who was the Pierce Brosnan Bond? I think that Pierce uh, showed this kind of... I would say if I had to, to note... Uh, a unique characteristic of him would be that he he showed that that kind of vulnerability and emotional side of Bond without going to the extremes of Craig and Dalton. I mean, Dalton was kind of very emotional, angry. I mean, more angry and pissed that I mean that Pierce and then we, if we compare with uh, with Craig, he's very emotional and. Sometimes he's close to tears, and I say Pierce has some subdued emotions. I mean, he's, you can see he feels the strain of the job, and he feels you know, things for Electra and for, for Trevelyan with, I mean, the, all the losing a friend thing and the revenge angle that Dalton and Craig handled very well, but in a more subdued, subdued way. I mean, he, he moves on and Nothing clouds his judgment. And other than that, at large, I think Brosnan guaranteed that Bond would go, could go on in the 21st century. I mean, without him, like I said before, 
we wouldn't have young Bond fans. I mean, Bond fans of our age wouldn't be Bond fans, I think, without Pierce. We only have senior Bond fans, so to speak. Okay, well, I've got to ask then. We've summed up the Brosnan era. How do you rank the movies? I know. I mean, it it has always been GoldenEye. It's my favorite uh, of Brosnan, of Bond, of all time. And my least liked, the what would be the worst, would be Diana Day. Although I recognize a lot of things that many people don't usually, but... I'm kind of tied up in in terms of Tomorrow Never Dies and The World Is Not Enough. Normally, Tomorrow Never Dies is my second favorite because it's I found it very more entertaining that The World Is Not Enough and with a better pace. But if we talk about quality and exoticism and look, I'd say The World Is Not Enough is, is superior. Mm-hmm. But they are like between two and three, but... It's normally, I would say it's in exactly the order, the release order. GoldenEye first, uh, Tomorrow Never Dies second, The World Is Not Enough third, and Dying Our Day fourth. Is there anything you would change about this era? Should we have gotten one more Brosnan Bond, or are you happy? I'm really pleased with the, the result of all his films. I mean, if when I watch them back, back uh, to back, one after the other, I think there's really very little of things I would change. I would have changed nothing of GoldenEye and of the other movies. There are really little things that I would have switched. But other than that, I feel the his era fulfilled me. I mean, I'm I feel satisfied when I feel the when I watch the the four personal adventures. But like, I mean, as a personal desire, I would have wanted to watch. Uh, two more with him until he was like, I don't know, 52 or 53, that he he really looked young. Well, you've heard the thoughts of our round table about the Brosnan Bond era, but we wanted to take a moment to talk to the guests of our previous episodes. So we've actually reached out to them all and had a chance to sit down with them and speak to them about their thoughts on the Brosnan era. Cam, roll the clip. And we are joined now by our guest from the Tomorrow Never Dies episode. It is, of course, the sister of Cam the Provocateur, none other than Janine Smith. Hello, Janine. Hello, Scott. Glad to be back. Are you? Um, yeah, I'm glad to be back, not necessarily under these circumstances. Okay. So I have a couple of questions for you, and I'll make it as painless as possible. <laughs> the, the first question, and I, I still get DMs about this now, when are we getting Scorpio? <laughs> so <laughs> I talked to Cameron about this and I told him that I will drop the track as soon as the Brosnan era is over. I did not want my track being laid down on a Brosnan episode. Okay, okay. So you're going to hold out for the Moors <laughs> so it sort of fits in with your childhood there or are you, you going to wait until the next film? How, how's it going to work? I mean... Ooh, now that you mention that, I might just wait till Roger Moore. So I don't know how long the anxious viewers or listeners might be waiting. Well, if they start a letter campaign, we might have to speed it up. But until then. But we're here today (laughs) to send off Piers Brosnan into the ether, maybe for the best when it comes to you. (laughs) But my question is to you, what are your thoughts on the Piers Brosnan Bond era as, as a collection of films? Um, so... 
I mean, as you know, I have a very, a very strong opinion about uh, Pierce Brosnan as James Bond. Um, part of that, I think, ties into the fact that he was the first Bond that I was able to see, you know, in theaters. And that was super exciting, having grown up on James Bond my entire life. And GoldenEye was awesome. You know, it, it was a great kickstart to him being Bond. Um, it had an amazing video game that came out too. Like, GoldenEye was peak. That song was everywhere. Um, loved it. And then Tomorrow Never Dies came out. Not a fan. Not a fan at all. And it just continued to go down and down and down from there. And I, I just over I just kept getting more and more disappointed. And over time it's it's not sort of gone back me looking and being like, oh, okay, it was a time and whatever. Every time I watch them, I just get more and more annoyed. It's interesting that like the world is not enough did not turn you around a little bit because that is a lot of people's favorites after Goldeneye. That's insane to me. <laughs> sorry That's to insane. half. Sorry to half our guests on this episode, but you're all wrong. <laughs> and you know what? The thing with Bond is that like I love James Bond across the board. Like even. The World Is Not Enough, Die Another Day, terrible, terrible movies. I love James Bond movies so much that I'll still watch them. And to me, they're better than a lot of other movies. So, uh, you know, I, I res <laughs> respect that people like those movies um, just because they are Bond movies. Sure. I, I appreciate you gave him that small little nugget. There. <laughs> Um, it's just a peace offering so they don't yeah, come at me <laughs> absolutely that's why you're not on twitter you just can't deal with the the, <laughs> the flame war exactly um, well, i suppose one of the other questions was is there a topic in particular you'd like to talk about when it comes to wrapping up the bros and bonds is there something about that era that jumps out to you um i just for me the biggest thing which i think you know we sort of touched on and you guys have touched on in the episodes is just the massive swing from the highs of goldeneye to the lows that it went to and just that i can't think of a james bond where it's been such a massive shift where their entry has been so powerful and their exit has been so abysmal i mean i are you looking at you, well, you I, I'm happy me? to argue with you all day. I would probably throw Sean Connery into the mix here, <laughs> as, uh, starting off from the wonders of Doctor No and then exiting on Never Say Never Again. Yeah, and I, well, for me, Never Say Never Again is not really an Eon Bond, so we can argue that that doesn't really fall in. But to me, Never Say Never Again, I mean, it, we're not talking about that, but I will take any chance I get to talk about another Bond. I don't mind that movie. I think it's okay. It's an okay movie. Just Sean Connery's lazy in it. Okay. And that's fair. Okay. Well, I, I, I'm getting the sense that you've not turned around on Brosnan since the nine months since we recorded Tomorrow <laughs> Never Dies. So maybe that's, uh, that's just how it's going to be. I can honestly say every time that he's talked about on your show and you're just going on about what a great bond he is. I want to put my fist through my phone. <laughs> to be fair, so do many of the listeners. <laughs> okay. Just in general. He's got one of those faces, I imagine. That's fine. 
<laughs> okay, well, uh, you know, it has been a pleasure, but I do have one final question, and that is your rankings of the Brosnan film. We'll go from worst to best. How do you rank them? Okay, so worst for me is Die Another Day. Um, very, very, like, way worse. Like, it's probably number, like, one, for sure, on the worst ever, hmm. ever, 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 ever. Um, then The World Is Not Enough. Passable, but still terrible. Um, Tomorrow Never Dies, then falls into that. Fun, but not good. And then GoldenEye, easily the best. Far, way out far. It can't even see the other movies that's so far out in front. Well, you've uh, you've uh, continued the Smith family uh, legacy there because both you and Cam answered the same when it comes to the rankings. So that's nice. You've had that consistency. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear we agree on something. Oh. I mean, can you at least say that you enjoy Brosnan in GoldenEye? I love him in GoldenEye. Okay, we've got that on the record. Print it. I love him in GoldenEye. The chin acting will always irk me a little, but it's not as egregious in GoldenEye. Well, so I'll take it. You've uh, you, you've definitely gone out on an all-time high here. So, <laughs> Janine, thank you for stepping once again into the breach that is uh, Brosnan, and uh, hopefully we'll see you down the Bond roads later on. Awesome! Thank you so much. <laughs> And now we're joined by Dr. Lisa Funnel, Associate Professor in the Women's and Gender Studies Program at the University of Oklahoma, and the author of such books as For His Eyes Only, The Women of James Bond, and Geographies, Genders, and Geopolitics of James Bond. She joined us for The World Is Not Enough, but now we're going to ask her about the Brosnan era as a whole. So first question, Lisa, what did the Brosnan era mean to the franchise? I think the Brosnan era signifies the return of James Bond in the 1990s. There was a lot of uncertainty after the Dalton era as to whether or not we would even have a James Bond franchise, as to whether or not we would see the return cinematically of this popular culture icon. And then you get the Brosnan era, which not only sends the message, you know, like the question gets asked, do we still need James Bond? Really, that's the question being asked. And then you get Goldeneye being like, oh, yes, we do. <laughs> and the rest of the film say, and we still do. And it, and to me, it heralds the return in, in such a meaningful way. He's, Pierce Brosnan is such an exciting James Bond. He looks the part. He acts the part. He sounds the part. He brings humor back to the James Bond franchise. He's more action-oriented. His films have far more machine guns, action sequences. They're more dynamic in terms of the chases. And of course, he gives us some of the signature moves like adjusting his tie along the way just to interject extra style points as he he engages in these different spaces. And so for me, I feel as though the Brosnan era is a golden age of James Bond. And what it did was it invited and encouraged a new generation to come and know and love James Bond. So I grew up in the 1980s and I grew up with the Roger Moore films, but I wasn't going to the cinema in the 80s to go see Roger Moore. But I was of the age in the 90s that I could go see James Bond in the movie theater uh, on the big screen and really feel the presence of this franchise. And I think for so many people, the 90s is really our sort of James Bond um our, our cinematic James Bond experience. And that means that it's meaningful for us moving forward. Cool. And 
Is there any highlights you want to point to, whether it's, you know, a Bond female lead, any villains? Does anything jump out as particularly memorable? I know there's one that probably <laughs> jumps to mind for you. <laughs> I would say, for me, one of the most memorable elements of the Brosnan era are the women. You see Goldeneye, Natalia Simonova. It is she and Bond, they are equal partners. She's the brains, he is the brawn. He cannot complete the mission without her, and she cannot keep her, keep in a sense, everybody safe without him. The two of them need each other. And I like their dynamic. I like the fact that Bond is acting and responding to a strong, independent woman, and he's okay with following her lead. And this comes in a film where Judy Dench's M is talking about him being a sexist, misogynistic dinosaur, these sort of these old ways that you have, and really encouraging him to, to step into a new era. And Goldeneye signifies that the women in the world of Bond have changed. And so he has to adjust the way that he interacts with them. And I think he does it quite successfully. And then we get to Tomorrow Never Dies. We get Michelle Yeoh, who is this dynamic Hong Kong action star, who is Again, a partner to James Bond, she's a co-hero, but let's be honest, she steals every scene in which she is featured. She's so dynamic cinematically in terms of her action and even just her presence. She holds her own ground. And in the scenes and sequences that they have together, not only does she outfight him and outshine him? She also, in in many ways, takes over that 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 role that he plays, where he oftentimes um, cracks jokes at the expense of women. And so it's in her lair with her cue-like gadgets that Bond's the one who's setting off devices, and she's just sitting there watching and laughing along. And you see some humility come in, right? That he's like, okay, this woman's capable, competent. She's my co-hero. And okay, I'm going to follow her lead because I don't actually like speak Chinese and I can't read Chinese characters. And then when we get to The World is Not Enough, we get our first woman archvillain. Yes, she's the first one in the series. It's Electra King. We did a podcast talking about Electra King. And you would think that 19 films into the franchise, we might have had another woman archvillain, but we don't. She is our first, and she's somebody who plays on Bond's affinity for, quote unquote, the Bond girl, right? She plays on his emotions. He falls in love with her. We kind of fall in love with her. And then she turns things around, and she uses his, his in a sense, his libido and his, and his love and the way that he connects with, with women in order to, to move them on to, to their side, onto his side. She utilizes the same tactics against him and comes out in many ways on top. And then, of course, you have the ending where he has to kill her because there is no world in which she won't continue to manipulate him. And by the time we get to die another day, I mean, Halle Berry's character is a little bit hit or miss with me. Um, I think Halle Berry is a great actor. I think that she is a great action star. Go watch John Wick 3. Uh, see her dog foo. I mean, she's she's very dynamic and she has quite a presence there. I think her character was just a little bit too cookie cutter, cut out. Uh, there's just a lot lacking in there. And some of the dialogue just, just let's rewrite some of the dialogue in that film. But she still is carrying on this tradition of Bond being paired with um, a physically empowered, action-oriented woman who's presented on screen as a co-hero. And, and so I really enjoy the women of this era. 
um, and and that's really what the Brosnan era brings brings to the forefront. And it's very sort of comparable, in a sense, to the 1960s, where women played a more prominent role as villains and as 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 hench people. And here you do see sort of a centering of of, of women, um, and and they're they're centering on on the filmic screen. Now the difficult question: hmm. the rankings. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I really suck with rankings uh, because I think each of the films has some redeemable qualities. But I'm going to go number one with Tomorrow Never Dies because I feel that by the second film, Brosnan really has his stride. He knows who he is in this Bond film, what he's about. We've got um, the Arnold soundtrack david arnold comes in and gives us like the bond sound that is rooted in barry you watch that opening credit sequence with the um weapons bazaar and even when i teach my gender and james bond course i show them that clip i'm like here's what it sounds like when you have the proper soundtrack in in a brosnan era film and they all like cheer and stuff like that at the right points but i feel as though that film has so much action i think that it's based on a timely subject it's really about the handover of hong kong uh, from british to chinese rule and it's carving out a new symbolic uh relationship between britain and 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 China and specifically mainland China in this new era and trying to negotiate these roles with uh, one being represented by Bond, the other being represented by Waylon, played by the amazing Michelle Yeoh. So, not to not to belabor that point that she's in the film, but I, I do like that film. I say a step down from that. My number two would be Goldeneye. I wish it had a better soundtrack. I mm. think I would be a lot more. Uh, a lot a lot happier with that but again i do love the action in that film i love the return of of bond i love the introduction of brosnan with that whatever scene where he jumps and it's kind of like it's not a boomerang what's the one where you jump and you're hanging down off of a string the bungee Bungie, I, I got the B. <laughs> Sorry, the bungee cord scene and just everything to do with the introduction of, of, of Bond in that way with him appearing upside down and there's a humorous element, but he's also going to whack the guy. Um, and of course, because there's a video game based on all of that, <laughs> that becomes quite iconic in introducing people into this franchise. So whether or not you've ever seen a Bond film, I know people who've played the GoldenEye game. And so it really has been a gateway into Bond. So I'll combine the two together and I really think that it, it represents a strong number two position. Number three. Oh, <laughs> I, cause I, I love my dad and my dad loves Die Another Day. So I'm trying to find a justification to put it in at number three, but I'm struggling with that. So mm -hmm. I'm going to, I right? I'm going to put it in at number four and go with The World Is Not Enough for number three, just because I feel as though that film is, is a little bit more uh, connected. It's, it's a more cohesive narrative. We have a strong woman villain. Um, I feel as though you see the different shades and levels of Bond being betrayed on a personal level. Um, you see sort of the MacGyver techniques of Judy Dench's M, which I always think is, is interesting. So I definitely would put that in at number three. And unfortunately, Die Another Day, as much as I would love to put it earlier, I just think that because of the CGI, um, because of some of the character developments of, of supportive figures, 
I'm not really sure about like the the racial changing element, the the technology. My students watch and they're like, wait, what was that? <laughs> <laughs> um, I but here's the thing. I do like the beginning. I like the fact that this film is trying to pivot a bit and give us a lot more torture of Bond, showing the bruises and and in a sense what happens when you're captured? Like there are consequences, there are physical consequences. And I love the little hovercrafts and I love how the torture scene is interwoven into the the, the credit sequence. And yes, I, people are going to hate me, but I do like the Madonna Die Another Day song because I think it works with the imagery that, that we see. And so, yeah, I think that there's a lot of redeemable qualities to it, but I think that there's just too much CGI, the concepts are a little bit too fantastical, too overly technological for me to buy into, in a sense, the realism that, or the gritty realism that they were trying for at the beginning of the film, which wasn't matched by the elements that we saw later. So I wanted it, I wanted to put it at number three, but it's a four. <laughs> That's totally fair. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. This was awesome. And joining us now, it is our guest from our recent Die Another Day episode. It is, of course, M from the Verbal Diorama podcast. Hello again. <laughs> Hello. I'm back. She's you couldn't back. keep me away. <laughs> <laughs> she just wants to talk more about Die Another Day, obviously. I desperately do, because I feel like we didn't talk enough about Die Another Day the last time I was on. We could have gone for hours, but, you know, much like uh, all good things, it had to come to an end. Yeah. But just like Brosnan's Bond. Well, and that's what we're here to talk about. So um, all the guests that we're getting back, we're asking one simple question and and they're asking their rankings of the film. So the first and main question is, what do you think about the Brosnan legacy? What is his legacy when it comes to the Bond films? For me, and obviously I've, I've given this a great deal of thought in the at least half an hour's worth of thought. And um, for me, I kind of feel like if you're a millennial, which I am, uh, and I assume yourself also right. is a millennial and can mm. as well, um, that I, I feel like for millennials, the Brosnan bond is bond. You know, this is the bond that the millennials kind of most associate with. It's the it's the one that kind of most of us grew up with. Um, and and I think that maybe there's a touch of perhaps rose-tinted spectacles when it comes to uh, reassessing these particular movies, uh, because I think that kind of favours them slightly. Um, I think when you look at Bond, um, I mean, at this point, uh, when Brosnan took over, it had been six years since Licence to Kill. And, and people, I think, at the time, I mean, obviously, I, I was quite young. I'm just kind of going off what I've kind of heard was that people wanted kind of a new modern take on Bond. And I kind of feel about Pierce Brosnan. I mean, he's an incredibly attractive man. Let's be frank. He's he's very handsome. Correct. He's not overly campy like Roger Moore was. Um, and he's not kind of overly serious like Sean Connery was so i kind of feel like he's a bit of an everyman bond and i think that's why this era of bond kind of continues to appeal so much even now 
uh, I think you could stick on a, a Brosnan Bond and you could be entertained. It would have kind of the serious undertones that you'd be looking for, like a proper action movie. It would have some really dodgy CGI, which everyone loves. Uh, <clears throat> Dino the day. Um, but I, I feel like the, the, the era of the Brosnan Bond, I mean, the legacy of, of, of Brosnan is really only saved by Goldeneye in 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 many ways um because that was the movie where brosnan finally got to be bond because he was obviously mooted to be bond in the 80s and he couldn't be bond because he had uh, other commitments and he couldn't do it so goldeneye was really the movie that kind of did catapult the franchise into the 90s and it had the suave sophistication it had the wry humor and it had the modern sensibilities but it also had the, the action and it had the you know, really memorable Bond girls of the franchise. And this was kind of the evolution of the Bond girl as well. Um, and, you know, as much as I have uh, affection for Die Another Day, because clearly I do, because I came on your podcast to talk about Die Another Day, um, the, the, the other movies, it, it just kind of petered off a little bit for Brosnan after Goldeneye. And then that's always going to be kind of disappointing to me that Brosnan never really got an opportunity to be that kind of gritty, serious, proper action star lead, you know, real kind of meaty, um, the sort of stuff that Die Another Day had in its opening. Because we talked about that in the episode, about that gritty opener, about how interesting that was to see Bond being tortured. Um, I would have loved to have seen Brosnan get to do more of that um get his chops into a really substantial story and um and it's a shame really actually that he never really got anything as good as goldeneye ever again um but i mean i hope that answers your question because i kind of feel like i've just kind of gone off on a bit of a a bit of a ranty tangent perhaps but no absolutely um, that that is that is a lot of what we've said on our round table and, you know, The World Is Not Enough is probably about as close as he got to it in terms of being serious. And there's some, you mm -hmm. know, some great character stuff in that film. But then that, that film is answered with Die Another Day. So you just kind of shrug and go, like, what, what were they doing with him? Mm -hmm. But the Brosnan's Bond did, of course, give us Craig. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, what I, I did have one question just popped to mind. And that would be if you had to pick a favorite moment from the Brosnan Bonds from your memory. Oh, God, my memory is so bad. I mean, you can't go with the parachute surfing scene from Die Another Day because we spoke enough about that in the episode before. But if there's anything that springs to your mind, what would be a favourite oh, moment God. or memory? You've really put me on the spot now because we can, I We have... can skip this if you want. No, 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 no. i tell you what, one thing has come to mind and it's the worst possible thing that yes. anyone could ever associate with these movies. And... It's that god awful Christmas only comes once a year line. That's it. <laughs> that that's genuinely the first thing that came to my mind is Christmas only comes once a year. Doctor um, Christmas I Jones. Think, mm. uh, Doctor Christmas Jones. Denise Richards. I mean, God. I mean, you know, God help her. She's a you know she's an incredibly beautiful woman, and I mean, yeah, you'd obviously want to a be Denise Richards or b be with Denise Richards, but. Christmas Jones. I mean, <laughs> uh, but yeah, that that's it. That that's kind of the first thing that popped into my mind as soon as you asked that question. Pretty much. I didn't ask so. what was the most cringiest moment, but you gave that to me anyway. So thank you. 
Uh, well, you're welcome. You're okay. welcome for Christmas Jones. Yeah, well, the world is welcome for Christmas Jones. Uh, <laughs> the world was not enough. But okay, the last question then is, what is your Brosnan Bond ranking? From Let's go from worst to best. Okay. So I'll be completely honest, uh, a little bit of a behind the curtains for the listeners is uh, I didn't know you were going to do this. And so I literally put this list together in about two seconds flat. I didn't really give it a great deal of thought, <laughs> I'm sure. And I know you can back me up on this, Scott, because we were already having a conversation when you asked me. So uh, you I'm, know I'm how sorry. quickly. I'm sorry, this is a complete fabrication. She's just trying to avoid the hate mail. That's all this is. <laughs> okay, so the the worst one, I mean, I kind of have to give it to Die Another Day, and that's kind of despite the things that I did like about it. And I certainly don't think it's the worst movie ever made. But if you're going to say, well, what's the worst Brosnan Bond, you kind of have to go with Die Another Day because it's, really quite ridiculous it starts quite well and then just devolves Rapidly. into the schlocky ridiculousness of ice surfing so i feel like you you just have to go with die another day and then the next two were kind of a bit interchangeable for me um and to be perfectly honest, I've not seen either in a little while. But after this, I am going to go and rewatch Goldeneye. <laughs> Definitely, 100%, I'll rewatch Goldeneye um, because I really do want to see that one again. But third, I basically put Tomorrow Never Dies um, for reasons. I mean, I kind of just had to choose one or the other. <laughs> and That's then. Fine. Uh, second, um, well, I mean, clearly, uh, Christmas Jones has saved this movie, and obviously, it is the only thing I could think of. So, the world is not enough was number two, purely for Christmas Jones. Um, and uh, yeah, number one kind of has to be Goldeneye, and I think it's just because the the legacy of Goldeneye is something that is kind of truly interesting. Um. This was the movie that saved Bond. It was the movie that saved the UK film industry from collapse because without Warner Brothers buying Leeds and Studios, after they made Goldeneye, we may never have had the Phantom Menace filmed here or, or the entire Harry Potter series. And the amount of money that that generated for the UK film industry is kind of indescribable. So, and obviously it has a really good video game as well. I had an N64. Uh, I worked in a computer games shop at the time when Goldeneye came out. Um, or was it just after? No, it was just after Goldeneye came out because it was basically the game on the N64 that everyone wanted because it was so brilliant. Um, so, yeah, I was always kind of on the Goldeneye train. I haven't seen it in a long time. I will rectify that. Um, but, yeah, I kind of feel like it has to be Goldeneye. There's, there's nothing that Pierce Brosnan did that was better. Um, and there was a kind of more that he did that was worse. So <laughs> I, I, I can't argue with that ranking. It's it's not my exact choice, but okay. you know, first and first was, and last was dying of the day the first for you. Absolutely, <laughs> it, it, I am all about you know parachute surfing and guys getting shot in the face with laser beams. That is what I'm here for. Well, I mean, interestingly, the listeners don't know this, but uh, I, I see that you have started uh, putting little diamonds. Uh, in your face 
yes. uh, which is yeah. a nice little nod to Die Another Day. And I mean, they they look very shiny and beautiful. And um, yeah, you do you. I needed something to distract from the rest of the face. So that's fine. <laughs> um, but there you go, guys. That's that's the ranking. M. I want to thank you for taking the time out to join us on our Brosnan Roundtable. And of course, guys, make sure you check out Verbal Diorama. I'm going to keep lobbying for M to cover GoldenEye at some point because her name is M. She should be covering it. I'm just saying. Well, I haven't done a Bond movie yet, but I do have plans to do a Bond movie. Oh, there you go. That's a little sneak preview, guys. But again, <laughs> Em, thank you for joining us so much. Thank you, Scott, for having me. Um, it's been a genuine pleasure. It was great to have our previous guests show up again to send off the Brosnan era you know, with love. Uh, especially great to hear from uh, Janine. I'm still waiting to hear the uh, Scorpio rendition. Mm, yeah, no kidding. That will be for our uh, Bond series roundtable in the year 2046, I think. So very tired. <laughs> Maybe No Time to Die will have just about released by that point. Yeah, no kidding, right? No kidding. Mm, mm. But also, as a special bonus, we wanted to talk to you. The, the people listening at home. And so we put a tweet out earlier on today asking for your favorite moments of the Brosnan Bond era. So we're going to pick a few of our favorites at random. Cam, why don't you start us off? Yeah, first up, I have one from James Loves Films and Footy at James Eggison on Twitter. And he says, the scene with Dr. Kaufman in TND is great. I enjoy the way Bond sets Kaufman up to unlock the car with his phone only for him to taser himself. Much like how Connery surprised Grant with the briefcase in From Russia with Love. I am so glad you brought this one up, James, because we never referenced Dr. Kaufman when we reviewed Tomorrow Never Dies, nor in the round table. And I think Dr. Kaufman was a really strong minor character in the Bond franchise. We talked about how Brosnan had great villains. And here was just a one scene villain who really popped. And you're right, like the brutality with which he's taken out, pretty cool. And reminds me a lot as well of um, Dr. No, where he takes out Professor Dent in the, you know, darkened room with the silenced pistol. So Dr. Kaufman, good call, James. He was just a professional doing a job. So was Bond. Mm. Mm. Well, following up from that, I have uh, a personal favorite of mine that's been picked up by Kriegler uh, with the handle at Shooter Kriegler, a friend of the show. And he says, always been a fan of this moment from Tomorrow Never Dies. Bond stopping amongst the bullets to MVY Lin making an easy getaway whilst he takes all the heat. It's so very cool. And Wylin grinning and waving at Bond is absolute hashtag shithousery. <laughs> Yeah, we got some love for Tomorrow Never Dies going on here, two in a row. Yeah, I mean, and, and to be fair, I didn't talk nearly enough about Wylin in, in our roundtable discussion, but I did talk about her a lot on the episode we did on the film. But yeah, this is a great scene. It's a good moment where you know, Wylin is showing she is as capable as Bond. Yeah, and Michelle Yeoh is so fantastic. And again, like it's the type of actor that they chose there that I would like to think influenced the decisions they made post Brosnan, where it's like, look, let's get back to characters like Wai Lin, who had the audiences really excited. And it seems like they've more or less done that in the Craig era. So I'm looking forward to that even post Craig. Um, my next one is from D Chandry, also at D Chandry, who says, my favorite Brosnan moment is the fight in Goldeneye on the boat 
where he wipes his face with a towel after. That was the moment I knew Bond was back. Shout out for the tank chase, though. Both great moments. Um, that fight on the boat, I like that you highlighted that one, because it is a smaller moment. When we think of great Bond action scenes in the Brosnan era, we tend to think of things like the tank chase, which is, of course, awesome. But also, you know, we talked about the cradle battle at the end of GoldenEye, as well as, you know, I referenced the stealth boat, you know, shootout in Tour Never Dies. We tend to pick big moments, and that moment where he takes the guys out and wipes his face with the towel, very Bond, very cool character moment. I had to, uh, when I read this message earlier, I had to go back and actually look at the, the scene. I had actually forgotten it, funnily enough, but yeah, it has a very Bond feel to it. Like, he just has that, that coolness to take a beat and wipe his face down. Mm. Good stuff. Yeah. My next one is from George Aldridge, who is, of course, the co-host uh, at the Cinema Savvy channel on YouTube. We recently guested on there talking about The Man with the Golden Gun. That was a really great episode. I would suggest you all check it out. Uh, and his handle on Twitter is at Aldridge96. And he says, The adjusting of the tie underwater in the world is not enough. I am here for tie adjusting Brosnan. We didn't mention that on the episode, but uh, he's got a few of them. But he's got the one on the tank as well in GoldenEye, which is my favorite, well, one of my favorite scenes in GoldenEye as well. Yeah, and it feels like it's something that was carried forward a little bit because I think of um, Craig adjusting his cufflinks in Skyfall. So, uh, really fun moment. Um, so, I think I have one last one I would like to highlight because it's actually from Die Another Day, a movie we've bagged on, but the words are not enough which is the uh, Twitter account for the podcast, The Words Are Not Enough. And that actual handle is at T-W-A-N-E-Pod. They highlighted a moment from a movie we picked on a lot. And he, they say, Not Braz's coolest moment per se, but I, ado I adore this entire sequence in Die Another Day. And he's referring to the one where Bond um, knocks out the guy, puts him in the wheelchair to break into the clinic in Cuba. He continues and says, I like how Bond targets this rich asshole for harassing the staff and uses him to get to the clinic, then uses him again as a distraction. It's so petty and yet so richly deserved. And it's a really fun moment. It's one when I now start to imagine it, just judging from the description there, going off of the description. It is a very fun moment. And it's the sort of thing that I think at its best, Die Another Day does well, which is these kind of... Uh, very almost darkly funny Bond moments. We get a few earlier on in that movie, and uh, that is a really solid one. The bit where he's getting tortured is hilarious. Oh, comic gold. But, you know, I think of the <laughs> all the stuff in the hotel room in Hong Kong, for example, is really fun, too. Yeah, And it's funny you mention that, Cam, because a little later this week, we sat down with Rachel Grant, who, of course, plays Peaceful Fountains of Desire, the masseuse slash Chinese spy question mark in that scene and we had a really interesting chat with her so I suggest you check that out later in the week mm -hmm, definitely yeah uh, well I'll finish this off with uh, actually one of my personal favorites and it was picked up by friend of the show John he goes by not perfected yet and his handle on Twitter is at not perfected yet he also has a really great blog that I suggest everyone checks out and he simply says Ducking away from a bullet ricochet like it's nothing. With a picture of Brosnan ducking away from the shot as he's laying the mines towards the end of Goldeneye. Um, it's just one of those cool moments because he just, just dodges the bullet like it's nothing. Like he's seen it coming. He's so cool. I'm so glad that he brought this moment up because I did not even think to mention this in the roundtable. I don't think i can't remember it's been so long ago now but i don't even know if we mentioned that in the goldeneye review 
But this is one of the great Brosnan moments, and it's not flashy. It's not the sort of thing that when people put together their YouTube best of Brosnan Bond reels, that this moment necessarily makes it. But it is such a fantastic Bond character moment and just shows how you know calm this guy is under fire. So great moment. I'm so glad you brought this one up. Perfect choice. Now, there were plenty more answers on Twitter. We're sorry we couldn't get around to everyone's, but if you want to hear us do this more often, let us know and we'll start doing more of these interaction moments in the show. Well, Cam, do you think we have sent Pierce Brosnan off in style? I'd like to think so. Um, I think Brosnan deserves so much more for what he contributed to the franchise, but I think we did the best we could to honor the achievements of what seems like a really great guy. And a really fantastic actor and what he brought to the franchise. So I'm excited as we go forward to do more of these roundtables on, you know, Sean Connery. Um, I guess he'll be probably the next one we do, given that we are covering the Sean Connery films at this moment. But I'm looking forward to doing ones on, you know, Dalton and Moore and Craig in the future. I think these will be a lot of fun. And I look forward to hearing other guests come on and talk about, you know, each of these Bond eras. I think it'll be make a really cool collection when we've kind of done them all. And, you know, we could also, if you guys like to spin this off into other franchises. So we have finished the Jason Bourne franchises, for instance, but we could revisit them down the road and do a roundtable about all five films or four, if you don't count Legacy, or maybe the Harry Palmer films, you know, anything like that is, is up for grabs. So let us know what you think. I don't know if the Taken um, roundtable would support itself, but some of these <laughs> others definitely. Yeah. You know, someone took away a leg from that table. <laughs> um but yeah again and i also want to just take a moment to thank firstly our guests so shayla and tom for doing the main roundtable section janine uh dr lisa and m for you know dropping in as well and giving their thoughts on the era and of course everyone who replied on twitter and of course the listeners who have made it through i think by this point over two hours of brosnan fun (laughs) but cam what are we doing next week We are tackling the 1987 Kevin Costner spy thriller, No Way Out, a movie that I'm really excited to dig into. It has a real cult fandom around it. I haven't seen it, so I'm genuinely interested to find out what all the fuss is about. This is something I picked, but I had no idea about the film. So I'm going in completely blind. I just know it's like an early Kevin Costner film. Um, I mean, my my Kevin Costner memory is basically Dancer with Wolves and Waterworld. So hopefully it can improve on those. I would have thought Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, you being British, I would have thought that that would be what you're all about would be the Kevin Costner Robin Hood. Well, I'm actually recording from Sherwood Forest right now. Yeah, and you're wearing a Robin Hood outfit, although that's <laughs> typically the case week to week anyway. That's true. And to be fair, I have the hair of Friar Tuck. Weirdly, though, you're the um, <laughs> Disney Robin Hood right now in a full fox costume as well. So. <laughs> There's a snake in the background somewhere. <laughs> Hiss is just floating by on a balloon somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Hiccuping, I think. Yeah. Uh, well, there you go, folks. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to check out No Way Out and join us next week. We are, of course, a proud member of Podbreed and Quite The Thing Media Podcast Networks. You can find out more about those on their respective websites. And you can, of course, follow us discreetly on social media at SpyHards. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S. But until next week, listeners... You know, I have been known to keep my tip up.